You're listening to an Empavillion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello and welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us for the Uptown Emery Lay, a collaboration between the Uptown Exhibition, M Pavilion, the Turning Circle Collective and the support of City of Melbourne. Um, my name is Robert Buckingham and with Fiona Scanlon, I, uh, we co-curated the Uptown Art Exhibition at the top of Burke Street. The exhibition featured 26 local artists and was designed as a quick response project to reactivate the city. Uptown M Relay is an extension of the project. Uh, we were supposed to meet at M Pavilion's new car park home, but the recent lockdown means we meet online. Um, the format, however, remains the same. A relay of interviews between 13 people committed to our city and determined to try and make it better. The top of Burke Street, the location for both the Uptown Outdoor Exhibition and M Pavilion, is an area that's been a meeting place for tens of thousands of years. And on behalf of all speakers, I acknowledge the Boonarong and the Wurundjeri people um, of the Kulam Nation as the traditional owners and custodians of the land and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Historically, the establishment date for the place we know as Melbourne was 1835, 185 years ago. This was the date that the lands of the Coulomb Nation were invaded as part of an organised business venture and a speculative land grab. This makes the history of Melbourne just as shameful and even more avaricious than the, than the arrival of the first fleet in Sydney in, in 1788. This traditional founding story of Melbourne had its beginnings on the banks of the Yarra, when the top of Burke Street was a hill surrounded by lightly treed grassland and verdant swampland teeming with wildlife. The 1835 start date is patently absurd as the land was occupied and managed by the people of the Coulomb Nation. And I think it's now so important to recognise our city's much more complex and ancient history. So what does Melbourne mean to me? Um, my response to Melbourne will always be coloured by my first big trip to town when, as an 11-year-old boy from the suburbs, I travelled into the city um, unsupervised by adults. I just joined uh, the local scout pack, and so with the elder boys, um, I, I had my initiation, a trip to town. Um, we arrived by train at the Princess Bridge, Bridge Station. That's now been demolished, and it's, the, and it's Federation Square. Swanson Street was the major thoroughfare for Melbourne, um, busy with trams, uh, cars and trucks. We had lunch at the Golden Eagle um, Cafe. Um, I chose something I'd never eaten before and felt slightly queasy all day. Uh, we went to Collins Street to uh, an old picture palace and, and went to a film that promised sex and nudity. It actually turned out to be quite a good film. Um, but afterwards, we then went shopping to Burke Street and. Uh, um, we went to a very old-fashioned variety store called Cole's uh, Variety Store, and uh, my older friends uh, tried to teach me to shoplift. Uh, the, the adventure to the city, the social, the retail, the culinary and cultural adventure 
was something which has stayed with me. And I think it sort of says so much about um, uh, um, so much about the experience expanding nature of a city. And it also clearly revolves in in that period of time. Now, nearly a, nearly half a century ago, how quickly our city has been so radically transformed, and hopefully how we have the power to make change and contri- and contribute to the future. If the current pandemic has proved anything, it's proved that nothing can be assured and nothing can be taken for granted. After three decades of unfettered growth, a building boom and intense property development, a huge population increase, and a city that has literally been awash with money, COVID-19 has brought Melbourne, the city we love, to a crashing halt. And the economic prosperity and reputation for livability that Melbourne has enjoyed for so long are all under enormous pressure. But this seemingly dreadful moment also brings with it opportunities, and certainly an opportunity to reflect seriously on the city we have created and the city we want to inhabit. So our discussion is titled Reinventing the City, and it's about thinking about our shared future. I'd like to thank M Pavilion for hosting our event. M Pavilion is a project I know well, and I'm incredibly, incredibly proud uh, it has been able to reinvent itself so successfully. As you may know, M Pavilion um, was originally established by Naomi Milgram and the Naomi Milgram Foundation, and continues um, continues to with the idea of a uh, a purpose built. Um, architect design pavilion for the Queen Victoria Gardens. Um, That model worked perfectly for six years, Um, but uh, with COVID, um, that model no longer worked. And M Pavilion demonstrated its agility to continue its role as an ideas hub through a new location in a CBD car park and through an active online program. The M Relay format was devised in the first year of M Pavilion. Each speaker is both interviewer and interviewee. It's a fast-paced conversation between thinkers and doers. We also uh, don't have uh, lengthy introductions, but each speaker has a bio in the, in the M Pavilion website. Thank you again for your interest, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Um, Millie is an architect, educator, and creator of Creative Spaces. Um, I grew up in the boring middle suburbs of Melbourne. But Millie, on the other hand, you were a child of um, cool parents brought up in Fitzroy and the city was your backyard. Um, Tell us about your relationship with the city. Yeah, thank you, Robert. And thank you um, for having me as part of this this relay event. It's really good to be here. Yeah, so I guess it's interesting to reflect, but I really do look at the sort of the four decades of my life so far as having very kind of distinct relationships with the city and this kind of, I guess, a continuation there. And so my my childhood was very much about um, being in the city, being in the city with my dad, walking the city endlessly, this kind of um, relentless kind of familiarity we had with, with Melbourne, Burke Street being the sort of the central spine of the city of those days. And, um, yeah, so I grew up right at the top end of Fitzroy. It was kind of a, a minute or two when I was crossing Victoria Parade and sort of, 
at the top end of the city. So there's been this, I guess, intense familiarity that I've had with the city for a long time as as well as, I guess, this kind of endless sense of discovery. So maybe separately to a, a, a more sort of suburban or neighbourhood sense where there is this kind of deep familiarity, there was always something new happening or there was always something new to discover. So that was really, I guess, the, the foundation of my experience of the city. And, yeah, and I guess thinking then about moving into my teenage years, there was that, I guess, familiarity led me to sort of embrace a lot of subcultures, much to potentially my parents' Um, horror <laughs> um, but there was kind of the skater culture in the early 90s the sort of the punks and the the goths of Flinders Street and then sort of really seeing rave culture come through Melbourne in the sort of mid to late 90s and and really being part of all that and feeling like everyone was connecting in an equal place um, never really knew where people were from you always just met in the city so there was this kind of yeah this sense of um, discovery that, that that went through my teenage years as well. Yeah, and I suppose that's in the in the pre um, um, internet and pre um, mobile phone period. Yeah. That was yeah. Yeah. you know cities yeah. were that real connecting place. Yeah, like you knew that you you turned up to Flatlands or you turned up to Flinders Street Station and you'd meet your you'd meet your tribe, and that was that was really that was really important throughout my throughout my teenage years. And I guess then just to sort of flow on from that, like. My 20s were very much, I, I went to RMIT and I spent most of my 20s at RMIT studying both interior design and architecture and, and the city, I, I sort of really embraced and loved the fact that RMIT sees the city as its place of learning. You sort of, you spill out of the camp, the campus is the city and you sort of spill out of the classroom so so easily and fluidly and, and even going back to like my first year at uni, there was this sense of the city is, the city is your tool for learning and the city is a place of agency through learning and that was um yeah it was yeah really it it suited me really well to to find a home at RMIT I've never left <laughs> <laughs> and it, I mean it has it's interesting how you know Melbourne almost is a bit of a university town because it has RMIT and because RMIT has played such a major role particularly in the I suppose the last 20 or 30 years as such a leader in design and design thinking. So much, yeah, yeah, definitely. And, uh, and yeah, I think it's just its ability to kind of grow and um, occupy parts of the city in this very sort of, um, I guess, dynamic or just a very, um, very sort of, yeah, just kind of flourishes through the city and populates part of the city and, and its students bring such a, a life and vibrancy to, to the streets as well. Yeah. And that, yeah, and I guess, yeah, yeah. So it's, um, yeah, it's, there's been, I guess, a, a continuity for me of just feeling like the city is not a place for shopping. The city is not a place for office. And I've never had a sort of an office job in the city bar a couple of years there. But um, the city is a place where you express yourself and you have agency. And, and I guess that is not the experience for all. And maybe I'm speaking from a, from a sort of a privileged position when I say that, because I really appreciate that's not everyone's experience of the city. But um, for me, just I guess that familiarity from 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 the the beginning has enabled me to have that relationship with the city, which I really value. Yeah. And so you studied architecture um, and interiors. And so as an architect, the interesting thing is that you don't seem to be that interested in big, glossy, no. iconic buildings. No, not at all, Robert. Yeah. Um, I think there's a there's a very important place for them, but. I'm, I'm just not that interested in 
participating in producing them. Um, so, yeah, I guess I've really come in recent years to think about this idea of creative infrastructure and that's really underpinned our work for the past, I guess, if I going back to that notion of those kind of decades of my life, that my 30s has been all about producing in the city and making work in the city um, through my practice. And, yeah, and very early on there was a, a desire to, get, I guess, produce um, platforms or, or infrastructures that, that enable and, 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 and are given over to others. So that's really underpinned the work um, that I've been doing with my partner, Joseph, for about the past 10 years. And the business is called? Uh, these are the projects we do together, or just to make your life a bit easier, the projects is fine. <laughs> and so probably um, many people will know of you through the work that you did on a, on a project called Testing Ground, uh, which is on City Road, I think the former site of an old building called old YMCA building and in yes. the shadow of the Arts Centre. Um, tell us about that. And Robert, your, th that notion of being in the shadow of the Arts Centre has been really sort of pivotal to our both our kind of our appreciation of that space, but also the, the way we've sort of found ourselves in this kind of strange pocket of the city. It's funny, you know, I talk about the familiarity of, of this city, but I never knew that that site was there. It, it had been hoarded up for about 25 years prior to us um, us taking, taking a, a licence on that site through Creative Victoria. So... That really started as a very uh, sort of a humble project back in 2013. It was uh, coming off the back of um, <coughs> um, discussions with Arts Victoria at the time. And uh, there's been an empty site there, which, as you say, is the former home of the, um, of the, the YMCA. And it, it really kind of has a kind of a physically very sunken feeling in the city because of the, the art centre sort of podium and St Kilda Road that's obviously it's been sort of, it's sort of, at a high level. Uh, so it's been in the shadows of the art centre, yeah, indeed, for, for many years. And so we took a licence on that site and we threw a sort of a mechanism of leveraging the caretaker's budget, which was allocated to that site. So money that was associated with weed removal and, um, and, and rubbish collection and graffiti maintenance and so forth. We took over that, we took a licence agreement with that caretaker's budget and I guess the first move we made there was um, very humble. It was about opening the gates and seeing what happened. It was an experiment. Um, and so it was a testing ground for artists and for people to use, but it was also very much a, a testing ground for Arts Victoria and for our practice as well. And I, I must say our practice has very much evolved with it over the past over the past eight years. Yeah. And so what it was, testing ground was sort of creating a, a framework and yes. so can you talk a little bit about the architecture or the, yeah. the, the built parts? Yeah, yeah. So in, in its initial days, we sort of, we, we refer to it as a sort of a Trojan horse project. It was very much in, uh, sort of um, hidden under the aesthetic of pop-up. We were sort of doing what we could with the budget we had and we were trying to open those gates on a daily basis uh, for artists and, and creatives to come and utilise the site for primarily experimentation and work and development as opposed to, um, showing finished work and it really has evolved with um, with our practice it's evolved with uh, budget cycles it's also evolved with the evolution of Arts Victoria becoming Creative Victoria so um, in 2016 we were fortunate enough to get a, a, a 
a, a new budget for a, a rebuild of the infrastructure. Our, our pop-up pallets were kind of degrading and, and everything was feeling a bit dishevelled. And so we were, we were, and it was really um, exciting actually, we were given the opportunity to both design that to operate that and to and to program that once it once it was open. So we had distinct distinct programming budget and an infrastructure budget. And so we saw the first three years of our life on that site really as research and development in terms of understanding what that site needed. So we had no sort of preconceived idea. We sort of joked that the upgrade was going from one one um, one PowerPoint to fifty PowerPoints. So and that was facilitated by a, a large steel. Um, six metre grid that spanned the entire site that then connected, sort of created a courtyard space and connected three distinct kind of multi-purpose boxes for want of a better description that all had the capacity to kind of flow out onto um, this courtyard space. And that, yeah, so that that's this kind of infrastructural approach, this idea of a platform and something that's incredibly useful and something I guess that recedes into the background through use. So Going back to your point, Robert, about not interested in big buildings, we are really interested in this infrastructure through being incredibly useful, almost disappearing. And, and in a way, this rather than architects usually build a building and then hand it over and then it, it does what it, it's meant to do or it doesn't, um, you seem to have adopted a, a very curatorial approach and an ongoing relationship with the site and the building and how it operates. And we Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> we live with our mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> they haunt us daily. Um, yeah, entirely. So, yeah, we, we do. We sort of see, uh, and I guess it's really, as I said before, like our practice has evolved with these sites and it's really come to appreciate the fact that being on these sites and living through these projects and seeing their use on a daily basis does inform our future decisions about other sites and about, in fact, how we adapt and adopt what's there currently. So, yeah, um, we, we have, I'm, I'm the only architect on a team of people. We are curators, we're ops managers, we're programmers. We have a diverse team. In fact, Molly has worked with us who's here. Um, that, yeah, we're, we're a really diverse team and we pride ourselves on all bringing very different ideas to what the project is. And we see, we see the lessons learnt through operations and maintenance and, and rehabilitation as incredibly important to the curatorial approach to the project. Yeah. And, I mean, your success has led to the fact that you're now doing another project in Brunswick, um, which is a more, um, 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 in, a, in a permanent or in a building, um, yep. activating a building, which is an old school. I understand you're going to, you're reinventing a quarry in, yep. in Gippsland. And yep. I think um, the City of Melbourne have asked you to work on a project in Fisherman's Bend. So you have a lot of the sort of skills that to some extent a city needs. So um, if you were given um, the opportunity, uh, what would you suggest to the City of Melbourne to do? Well, that's, that's a tricky, well, no, it's, it, of course it's a tricky question. Um, so I guess our, like our experience has come about through really finding opportunities with sites that have either troubled pasts or uncertain futures. So the sites, the, the commonality, although one's in Brunswick, one's in the city and one's in, in the Otways, the commonality between them is that they all have really kind of just sort of, they, they're, they're disturbed sites in different ways. They have large question marks around them from either a sort of a bureaucratic point of view or, a, I mean, the fact the quarry has a kind of a, a rehabilitation kind of overlay on it. So we really, 
revel in finding these kind of opportunities where there where there is sort of there is trouble, and that trouble can be leveraged uh, to to and seen as an opportunity. And I guess maybe thinking about that at sort of an urban scale, looking at looking at 2020 and, and in fact probably 2021 and the effects that are coming through the city, I guess it's I bring to it, I don't have sort of hard and fast answers, but I do bring to it this idea of an approach, an approach of kind of leveraging the issue, not seeing the issue as a block, but actually seeing it as something that can that can um that can that can be the the beginning of an answer out or a way out. So, um, so yeah, and 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 thinking like not trying to return to maybe what what Melbourne was, but trying to really see the observe the changes and and be cognizant of what's happening now, and and seeing maybe the inequalities that have always been there, but that are being much more kind of um, they're much more evident now. So I guess it's a it's an attitude of responding to as opposed to fixing. I guess is what I'm interested in coming out of COVID. Um, yeah. Thanks, Millie. And I think the idea of learning through doing, which you do yes. amazingly well. So and thank you so much for today. No worries, Robert. Thank you. Thanks. Hi. Hello. Hello. Nice to... We were hoping to meet in person, but that hasn't happened. Yeah. Yep, we'll get to do that. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> we'll so, so firstly, Susan, um, yeah, it's real honour to, to speak to you today and to ask you some questions. Um, so you've got this kind of really extraordinary and long-standing practice that spans art and craft and, and design. And I guess what I maybe picking up on the, the, the what we were just talking about and what Robert had mentioned earlier, it's just this fact that you've also had this relationship with the city for, for you say, 40 years, which is extraordinary. And you've both been living and working in the city for that time. And are you in, you're in your workspace? I'm now. in my workspace right now. Amazing. Um, I have to do an apology at the outset. I'm a little bit dazed today. It was the closing of my son's bar last night on the corner of Flinders Lane and Spring Street, and he's been there for 20 years wow. and has also made a huge contribution. So we kind of celebrated and commiserated, drank lots of good wine, so I'm not quite functioning. <laughs> he's one of the COVID casualties, you know, uh, non-negotiable landlord. So it's sort of just, they're very big things in Melbourne at the moment. So yeah, I don't quite make sense sometimes. That's probably no, that's, that's good. That's, that's, that's really, um, yeah, that's really unfortunate, unfortunate to hear that. And, yeah. Well, it's happened to so many people and it's yeah. um, understanding all that and how, how we can work together. To, to move out of that. I mean, it's, it follows on what Robert was just asking you about futures for Melbourne and what local governments can do and mm. and what we can do as individuals. Uh, yeah. But getting yeah. back to you saying 40 years, um, it's a bit of a shock. I, do, I, I don't really like to think of it being 40 years, but on the other hand, I'm delighted to have a, spent so much of my lifetime in the centre of this city. Yeah. Um, I know as an artist, you know, I've worked in other places and I've lived in other places and I, every time I come back to Melbourne, I'm reminded and reinforced what it is about this city that makes it so different, particularly as an artist, as a, as a, a creative person. Mm. And there's a, and I think the two ingredients are curiosity and spontaneity. Things yeah. happen on the moment that there'll be 
a response to things or a reaction to things or a gathering of people. And it's you were commenting just before about living with your mistakes. This city allows you to make mistakes. Yeah, that's fascinating. To play, to not get it right, to experiment. And, you know, they go, okay, that didn't work. What are you going to do next? Yep. And that's invaluable. And that comes from the city itself. Yeah. It's not just in the artist community. And and do you see that as playing out on the streets or do you see that as happening? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's yeah. across it's across the board. I mean, some mistakes aren't allowed. <laughs> um, you know, Eddie Maguire, for instance. But I think that, you know, it's and it, the shift of it is that we used to have a time in which we had creative hubs, mm. we had the rag trade mm. and artists all working together mm. and that's sort of all moved on and changed. So there isn't quite that, there isn't that interaction that builds the intrigue of a city. So yeah. it's sort of changed in that sense. So I think going back to I'm really curious at the moment about what it is that really makes a city tick. Mm. And at the moment... The batteries run out. Yeah. We have to find a way to recharge it. And your thoughts about cultural production having a home in the city? Obviously, you've been working in the city for a long time. Do you Have you noticed that there has been a kind of a, a decline in the populations of people actually having studios and producing work in the city? Well, so many of the artists have moved out. When I first started working in the city, all the supplies were in the city. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, you got everything. You went out. If you were trying to work out a new idea, you'd go and look at places. You could go and see what was there. Yeah. Uh, you suddenly needed um, some O-rings, for instance. You could pop up and get them. Uh, there was So that built its own type of creativity. Mm. Uh, I was working on a project last week and did, I often go wandering around the, the streets when I'm trying to resolve a problem and see what materials or what people are doing or how people are wearing things. And um, it really jumped out at me at how mm. I couldn't source anything here. It would mean that I have to leave the CBD. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It makes you venture out wider. Mm. But that it added to a crossover. Um, I recently um, uh, came connected with what's called the donut theory. And this was an economic theory written by a Dutch woman and her name's gone out of my head at the moment. Uh, And she was talking about, it's talking about flows of community and economics and how that works and that the flow, what is important is that this, this central whole is such that the community flows around and the economics flow around and once that disappears then there's juxtapositions of you know sort of jarring up it stops the flow and I just keep thinking that's what's happened in Melbourne Mm. yeah disappeared yeah and there's no flow um and those networks of suppliers and 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 galleries and production all these sorts of things that sort of through being close and having proximity do then create other connections and um, incidental connections and, yeah, I think that's... And it, keep, it keeps the, 
the culture aware of what the thinking is, yeah. not just not just in creative communities, but the the two way street that happens between create, creative mm. um, creatives and industry and everyday life, mm. you know, is uh, mm. invaluable. And tell me, Susan, have you have you drawn inspiration from the city and the city's fabric over the years through your work? Oh, absolutely. My work my work depends on it. Yeah. And so your experience, like obviously through our, our big stage four lockdown last year, that you your 5K radius was the city. <laughs> so like what what was that experience like walking around the city when it was literally empty on a very like I know some of us kind of would venture in or look at photos, but you were really living through that. Can you can you talk was, to a little bit about that and how it was it surreal. It was surreal. In lockdown four, uh, there was no one on the street. It was there's no lights because no none of the restaurants or the businesses were lit up, none of the office buildings. So I live in Flinders Lane and it was black. It was it literally like a film set. And the only life were the food delivery boys yeah. on their electric bicycles with their helmets on and they looked like insects going zit, 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 zit. And that was the only life that was actually there. So it was um even a little bit scary to think, yeah. is this, you know, is this like when a city dies? Yeah, yeah. And, and how did that how did that inform your, the work you've produced in the past 12 months or so? Has it, has it had a sort of a flow and effect to your, to your creative practice? Um, it's just starting to spit out now. Yeah, I think I was, I realised how much the engaging with the central life of a city, just walking around a city, and that's what I do a lot, um, is the inspiration. Suddenly that had been cut off. Yeah. So I was, I struggled. I just was, but I did, you started to, I started to understand more about that exchange that happens. Yeah. Just that walking down to Flinders Street Station and walking back the range of people that you will see, the, mm. um, the, the daily practice, but also uh, the responsive things of people, something that had happened yep. uh, culturally or whether it was when a big event was happening, um, the loss of music, ah, yeah. <laughs> sort of just not being able to, you know, the whole sound thing changed. I noticed that yeah. I was hearing such different sounds like the, um, the traffic lights which you don't normally hear, all these little people's footprints. You suddenly hear some footprints, someone's shoes on the pavement. Oh, where's that? You know, just how it shifted that sort of whole um, sensibility about what is this background noise, this valuable background noise of a city. That's, that's fascinating. It really is. And maybe I'm not sure, I'm not keeping track of time, but um, I feel like we're, maybe we could talk for hours, but I'm not yep. sure how we're going. But I thought maybe just to just to sort of conclude, Susan, thanks, Molly. Um, uh, would you like to talk a little bit about your work for Uptown with Peeps of Nam and some of the feedback you're getting or responses you're getting through that survey? Well, Peeps of Nam, I think that was one definitely one of the responses out of Yep. being locked down, coming out of my studios in the basement, coming out of a basement and talking to people. And I'm immensely curious about what people are feeling. Um, now, 
you know, sort of last year, what the future is. And I needed to engage with people on the street, not just the people that I know. Uh, so set up this table and it's, I'm not, I'm not someone who will go and solicit a response out of someone. Yeah. Um, uh, I prefer people to just feel comfortable about engaging because um, I also don't like it when people are asking me to do things in that sense. And it's been fascinating the amount of people that sort of come over to the table and going, so what are you doing here? Mm. And the um, most surprising thing is that the majority of people ask me what NAM means. And I, that's, I, a year ago I may have expected that, but I didn't quite expect that. But what has been invaluable about that is the conversation. Yeah. And people being, then asking, can I fill one in? Yeah. I, want to, I want to add my voice to this. Yeah. This, I want to sort of um, give my thing. And you start to talk about what is the spirit of Melbourne. And there's some com commonalities that come up, of course, uh, coffee being one. Um, but also people are just venturing back into the city. A lot of people that I end up talking to haven't been into the central city for a year mm. yeah. and they've come back in to see that. And the positive response to Uptown is very heartening. Mm. You know, people are, that don't normally look at art because they don't feel comfortable about going into a gallery space or the like or they know a little bit about it but not this. And they've stopped and looked at each of the um, works, and then we've had a discussion about that, and, and that that's invaluable. Taking art to the people in a way, yeah, um, and occupying the occupying the street as a civic and sort of equal space through art. It sounds like that's been a really and one of the best now. questions is, I don't quite understand that. Can you tell me what that's about? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that, and you know, you say, there's, well, there's not any right answer. It's sort of just what you think it might be about. Yeah. Um, and that that engagement, I think, is invaluable. It's been fun too. It's been a lot of fun. I'm going to do one next Thursday after lockdown because I'm really interested in what yeah, maybe, exactly. what their energy is or what their yeah. Their, and that, a few people have ranted. You know, some people you sort of yell from up the street what their answers are because they don't <laughs> want to stop <laughs> and things like that. So there's that variety of, yeah, of things. That's really great. Well, well, thank you very much. It's been great to great to chat with you. And, yeah. Thank you. So come and Thursday, which sounds good. Yes, yes. Come and, come and add your voice. I'd love, I'd love to. Yeah, thank you. So now I've got to find uh, Rory. Hello, Susan. Rory. Susan. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Can you morning. hear me very well? Good morning. Um, so where do we start? So I, I said before I'm a little bit brain dead, so I thought I'd run this interview slightly differently. Um, I'm going to throw out a whole lot of single words and I would just want you to give a response yeah, it can be one word. It can be longer. If you get too long, I'll throw out the next word. Okay. Just a way of trying to troop through things rather than in a formal way. The first, you know, Rory is a designer and a curator. 
you're an educator, you're up at Melbourne Uni, um, Associate Professor of Architecture, doing a design and curatorial practice. That's right, yep. Um, you've written a couple of books, you know, talking about future practice of architecture. You've also worked in London. You were a design advocate for the Lord, the Mayor of London. And between what, 20, was it 2013 you went there? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. To last year, you were the curator of contemporary architecture and urbanism at the VA. What made you come back to Melbourne? Oh, good question. Big question. Um, I mean, when we arrived in London in 2013, it was such a high point. They'd just done the Olympics. Everything seemed brilliant. There was a sort of optimism and energy. And then over the years, it was just steadily chipped away. Brexit was a big part of that. You know, everyone who works in the museum is, um, so many of them are from Europe. They were all going home. Just felt like the city seemed determined to do itself in. And at some point last year, we looked at each other and said, what are we doing here? Why are we in, in this city that seems determined to, why are we giving our energy to this city that doesn't want to thrive? Um, so we started to make steps to get out of there. And I'd rather give my energy to somewhere which um, takes it and does something positive with it. That's why we're back in, in Melbourne. Oh, well, we're delighted that you're back and I'm going to confiscate your passport from now on so that uh, <laughs> you get out. Um, so what do you think the spirit of Melbourne is? Oh, um, I know it's a, it's a kind of cliche, but it's, it's creativity, isn't it? You know, I really think that there's a such a positive asset of being on the other side of the world from Europe and America that it's almost like a kind of petri dish that's experimented on at a distance where because you're not part of the main flow of things, you can do things a bit differently. And as you were just saying to Millie, you can make mistakes, you can experiment, you can prototype. I mean, if it doesn't work, you're not completely exposed. But that's what it means there's so many great ideas in this city. Coffee. Oh, um, soft power. So I was very <laughs> proud of Australia having invented the flat white. And I would tell anyone in London that, that we invented it. And, and I think that was the greatest advertisement for Australia in, abroad. Laneways. Um, possibility. A sort of unrealised possibility, potential. Artist contribution. Um, undervalued. I think that economic thinking dominates and we need to be better at realising other forms of intelligence and, and artists are that 100%. Age of architecture. Um, outside the cities, outside the mainstream, outside where budgets are good. That's where things get interesting. That's where the um, weird stuff happens. City centre. Um, having a difficult moment. Uh, and I think that I was sorry to hear about your son's restaurant, your son's bar. Um, and hopefully we can turn the page and, and recover it. Food. Uh, Pellegrini's. Aha. Uh-huh. Yay. <laughs> Mayor of London. Um, Sadiq Khan, a complete inspiration and a complete, 
um, all about addressing inequality. His big campaign was um, designing a city for all Londoners, and I think that's something we need to learn here is to is to remember that if Melbourne's a big city, it's not just Zone 1. Oh, okay. Um, sounds. Oh, um, yeah, the, the, the atmospheric ambient reminder of, of who you are and where you are. The sounds of, I'm, I'm down the coast now, the birds that here that are from my childhood are just like pure nostalgia. They just crack me in half. <laughs> well, it's an interesting bird life in the city. We've got yeah. pilots across the road in the Regent Theatre. They're oh, wow. <laughs> Local government. Um, that's, the, that's the front line. That's where you can really make an impact. I think that's streets, that's parks, that's schools. That's bikes. That's rubbish. The ban the banality of everyday living is what happens through local government, and that's where you can make a real change. Sight lines. Um, oh, well, sight lines in the city, I think, are been have been trampled. I'm so concerned about what's happening at the top end of Elizabeth Street. And the, this city coming over the West Gate, you think, wow, what an ugly city this is now compared to 10 years ago. And, and that, that makes, that upsets me. It's a big project. Yeah, yeah. COVID lockdown. Well, I certainly didn't do it as hard as you guys. Um, we were so in when London. You come back? What? In December, just before Christmas. Just before. And if, catch up with friends here. Everybody says, ha, ha, ha. It's like we've got PTSD and with a with a smile, and then you think, no, but you really do, don't you? You you'd like something. So, and we were asking, what happened here? We need to get to the bottom of it. Um, so the lockdown we had in London didn't really count. It, well, I did have COVID though, so that so oh, I, really? I have I have, oh, I have really? some experience of 2020. So I could have sat quite close to you when we did this in person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. What do we do now? Oh, we've, what do you think, five minutes? Um, well, we can talk. I can unravel some of those questions a bit further, maybe mm -hmm. to talk about... Um, I meant more as... Oh, what do we do now in the city? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, th I think Melbourne's in a really exciting spot, actually. I think that... Um, you know, so many of my friends and colleagues in London have just had enough. They see what they see poor governance um, in Britain, and they just want they don't want any anything to do with it. They can't trust their like lives and life and lifestyles and careers in a place that is so determined to you know poorly represent them. And I think that Melbourne. Australia getting to COVID zero, huge asset. We should be, of course, there's limits on who we can bring in, but um, there's there's literally tens of thousands of the most intelligent people who have had enough of the US and they've had enough of Europe, and they're looking for somewhere that with good governance. And I think we should be um, reeling them all in. Designers. Um, design is the, the thing that I'm into because it does these two things, which is it's, it can be both visionary in a sort of artistic sense, 
can plant a flag into ahead, which we need to pitch for, and and you know this is something new which we need to go towards. But it can also give you the pragmatic steps to get there. It's also practical, and that's where the sort of engineering brain of a designer is most useful to say we can be visionary and we can be pragmatic at once and and that's the magic of architecture of design of, of fashion of every f- form of design which i think is what sets it apart from engineering and, and art so industries um again overlooked and i think super important we need to have a kind of uh, Ruskinian revival of the arts and crafts in this city because of the different ways of thinking. And I look at your work, Susan, and I, and I, and I absolutely see that. I see material intelligence, I see colour, I see flair, I see um, new ways of thinking. And if we can put that into hands of more people, um, then that, that's the beginning of a, of a different kind of economy that's not built on ripping things out of the ground or on speculating on the stock market. So memory, memory in terms of what's still here. Yes, me, um, memory. I think the way that, of, you know, memories that have stayed that will become future memories maybe? Yeah, I, I'm thinking of, of places and of heritage and, you know, that stuff's so important because it's, it's what grounds us. These are the places that we share and that we um, connect to. And I think if you, if you completely rebuild a city too quickly, then people become rootless and they no longer care and look after the place. So that's, that's why memories are important. Yeah. Parking. <laughs> no, we need to get rid of the cars altogether. <laughs> Um, parking, make it difficult, make it expensive, do whatever you can the, 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 and then make the trams free. Like we just need to flip it so that I don't think people love their cars here. I think people love the convenience of the cars. We need to make the other option more convenient and we'll have such a better city for it. Empty office spaces. Um, again, potential, possibility, hand them over. I think we get Marcus Westbury in charge of all the empty office spaces, get him to renew Newcastle, the whole of the city, for the next two or three years and still, well, or, or longer. You know, the idea that that, it, that creatives should only be allowed into an office space for a temporary use is, I think, also misguided. First steps. First steps are open the doors. Yeah. Unlock the shops, give yeah. people the keys, give them the space and time and opportunity um, and, and everything will come from that. And maybe finally, what's your favourite thing to do in Melbourne? Oh, um, just to roll around. It's the spontaneity, isn't it? If you do the NGV or you duck into a small gallery, Pellegrini's for lunch, spag bowl with a whole lot of cheese and a um, watermelon granita and then drop into some friends in a studio and, you know, go on f- out for dinner and, and, uh, and stay out all night. That, that's what you can do in, in Melbourne without a plan. That's the key yes. thing. Yes. Without yes. a plan. I'm all for it. Oh, do you want to add anything? We no, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you, Susan. And I'm sorry we didn't get to do this in person. But um, hopefully we'll see you soon. I hope you're doing well as well. You too. Um, We'll cross paths. It's 
that's the thing about Melbourne being vibrant. You don't have to wait for an event to catch up with someone. You cross them in the street, in a cafe, in a gallery. That's right. It's those magic collisions, isn't it? That's yeah. what the city's about. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's reuniting. Re- re- We've got to join forces and make that happen. Absolutely. Yes, and that's the other thing designers need to do less of is compete with each other. We're all on the same team. Yep. Yeah, join forces. Very yep. well said. Yep. yep. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. I'm going to take over the, the chair and welcome the Lord Mayor, Sally Cap. Good morning, Rory. Sally, how are you? Very well in extreme circumstances, so yeah. thank you. Absolutely. Um, well, t- lovely you could be here. Thanks so much for joining us. And I thought I would kick off, well, just to, to give a sort of impression of Melbourne's perception on the on the international stage. Whenever friends or colleagues who'd never been to Australia, they'd go to Melbourne, say, for a few weeks to do some talk or whatever. They'd come back and the first thing they'd say to me in London is, what what are you doing here? Why aren't you at home? Like this city is incredible. Um, and so event, ultimately I took their advice <laughs> and I'm back. Good. Um, but we're here as part of Uptown, which is um, Robert and Fiona's incredible project to try and reinvigorate the city because it's had a very hard year um, mm. and we're just doing another lockdown now. Um, but I think hopefully it's a brief one and we can still look towards opening up. So my, my first question is what role can art and culture play in opening up and welcoming people back to the city? Yeah. Well, Rory, thank you. And we think art and culture, I personally think art and culture have a major role to play in how uh, we move forward for our city. That sense of creativity has to be at the centre of everything that we do. I think public art plays a, a particularly important role because it's so accessible for people when it suits them any time of the day. And what public art does as well is that it, 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 it encourages imagination. It, it helps people to think beyond their normal world or the scope of, of how they uh, normally operate and it really uh, sparks uh, that sense of thinking differently. And we know that we're going to need a lot of imagination and a lot of creativity and a lot of that energy uh, that is uh, motivated uh, through art and people feeling that they've been inspired in some way. I think the other element of public art that we've seen is that, uh, particularly from that extended lockdown last year, our open spaces and the way that we engage outside uh, and outside in, inside out, everything from the outdoor dining program to uptown uh, to what we're doing in our parks, which are now more appreciated and used than ever before. It's really important that we are more thoughtful and deliberate Uh, which seems sort of the opposite of spontaneous and serendipity, but we do have some uh, good investment and planning ahead of us in how we create more of those spaces for the people uh, who visit, live and work in the city. Fantastic. Now, many people will know of you and of your role, um, but perhaps have little idea of what you actually do, myself included. So what what does the Lord Mayor do? Who do you work for? What's your typical day? 
Oh, look, it's a great question, and I think I've been surprised at the breadth and depth of uh, this role as Lord Mayor, and uh, it's exhausting and exhilarating all at the same time. I heard you use an interesting word earlier, Rory, which is the banality of local government, and it's true. <laughs> we do have to collect people's waste, uh, and we do need to fix potholes, uh, and uh, there's still something very satisfying about walking around the streets of Melbourne and feeling that um, we can change people's lives in, in what could be considered otherwise quite uh, banal ways, uh, but nonetheless really important to people, whether it is uh, an, an issue that they're having uh, with a tree root uh, outside on the pavement uh, or, or something through to uh, services that they need uh, if they're feeling isolated or they're a new mother or they're experiencing homelessness. Uh, all of those frontline services are essential. And I'm involved in all of that as one of the key sort of conduits of people uh, and their views into town hall. But of course, it is much bigger than that as well. So it's everything from uh, that everyday and being at the coalface through to the aspirational strategic and uh, strategic thinking and planning. And I'm so mindful of the legacy of the city leaders in the 80s uh, and early 90s that set up transformational urban renewal policies like postcode 3000 that's taken our city from being described in the 80s as a moribund city in a rust bucket state now to being one of the most livable cities in the world. And that leadership and that vision and what is often very challenging decision-making between the here and now and the investing into the future from the banal to the aspirational, that balance happens every day. Uh, that challenge and those trade-offs happen every day here at Town Hall. Wow, fantastic. What an exciting job. Um, I, I, I want to get a sense of your connection to the city. Um, I mean, one of your responsibilities is arts and culture, which, of course, Melbourne prides itself on. What's your earliest important memory of um, living in Melbourne and of, of experiencing that uh, breadth of the city? Yeah, I think uh, as a girl from the suburbs, uh, the city was always an exciting, uh, it, it was a big place. Uh, it was scary too, uh, in some ways. Uh, and I, I do remember so vividly though, uh, one of the early debates that really resonated with me as a child was the debate about what was known then um, not affectionately as the yellow peril. Uh, steel Henge, um, you know, some of the other terrible names uh, for uh, the vault, uh, the sculpture that is bright yellow uh, that started out as incredibly controversial and really uh, uh, was the first debate that I can remember where people were expressing their views about investment in public art. And uh, we shunned uh, that sculpture for a long time here in the city of Melbourne. And uh, now it has uh, a, a pride of place down uh, near Acker there in our, in our arts precinct. Uh, but just extraordinary uh, to be able to remember that debate and for it to be indelibly marked in my mind as something that art should be controversial, that it should push the boundaries, that it should help us reimagine uh, what's possible, that there is no right or wrong uh, and that art can be very emotional and there's nothing wrong with that. 
Absolutely. It's, that's a great example. I also remember that. Um, I mean, it's only Melbourne that could have had such a um, <laughs> sleeves rolled up battle about a yellow yeah. sculpture. Yeah. And, and uh, it's living in city square and so on. It's amazing, isn't it? People had such strong opinions about it. Yeah. Um, and there it is somehow sitting down in South Bank, not offending anyone. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, if one of the other challenges, I guess, facing the city at the moment is affordability, um, especially for, let's say, the creative sector, artists, for galleries, creative businesses, um, you know, small fashion boutiques, this kind of thing. Mm. Um, it's hard for them to compete with these apartment towers springing up, which managed to, you know, transform so much of the city. Um, is it important to keep artists in the city and what um, measures could we be doing or are you doing to um, keep them there, help keep them there? Look, absolutely vital to keep artists and art organisations and uh, cultural organisations in the city. And there are some silver linings out of COVID, Rory. I mean, pre-COVID, we were one of the fastest growing cities in the world. We had a sense of sort of trying to manage and harness growth uh, I know that the challenges ahead of us are very much about stimulating and creating growth, but COVID's given us an opportunity to reset. You know, one of the big challenges pre-COVID was about how do we create more affordability in terms of housing because we want artists to live in the city and live near where they work and live near our arts precincts and in amongst our laneways and, uh, and, and business. Uh, and we want uh, there to be affordable commercial spaces and we, again, we've got some great examples uh, from decades ago where the Nicholas Building uh, became and still is today an absolute yeah. hive of uh, creative activity. And this reset economically does give us a chance actually to, uh, to find more of those affordable spaces for artists, whether it is shop fronts, whether it is uh, office spaces that won't, won't be needed uh, as much uh, if we're going to have more flexible working, uh, new buildings, old buildings, uh, how we reuse spaces, uh, all of that thinking is underway together with our affordable housing strategy, which was just recently approved here at Town Hall, which is about making sure people can live near where they work. And as I said, artists form a key part of that. I think what we're really looking for as a city is that we want to embrace artists. I'd love to say I was an artist, but I'm not, Rory. I, I, I sort of miss that gene in, in some <laughs> ways. I'm more of the engineer on your scale yeah. than, the, than the designer. Uh, but I appreciate it and I'm completely open for being led by artists. And one of the great things about Uptown was that uh, that Robert and Fiona actually approached us and said, this is what we want to do. And then our role is to is not to lead in those circumstances, but to support and partner. And we'd love uh, more of that. In fact, in January, we were had our highest month ever for inquiries from artists for spaces in the city. Oh, wow. And so we're working hard to be a, uh, a mediator and provider of those sorts of spaces. Fantastic. Now, I've got one final question for you, Sally. Uh, you mentioned postcode 3000 and the yep. way that Melbourne's transformed. I mean, I certainly remember when I was a kid that no one lived in the city and now it's just um, 24 hours, people living all over, shops, bars, secrets down laneways. Yep. Um, if that's where we are now, what, um, what's the next step? Where are we headed? What's, the, what's Melbourne's future? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I'll give you a quick stat, Rory. In the mid-80s, in the HODL grid in the CBD, there were 685 people registered as a resident. In the same HODL grid today, there are 42,136 people registered as residents, and they are the pulse uh, and the, the heartbeat uh, of this city. Uh, so what does it mean uh, for us going forward? Uh, we look at this as an opportunity for uh, renaissance. Uh, we know that Melbourne is a city uh, that is about bringing people together. In fact, we've been doing quite a lot of work with our traditional owners and that concept of Tanderum, which has been uh, going on for uh, tens of thousands of years here in Melbourne on the banks of the Yarra of bringing people uh, from across Victoria together for important events, for cultural events, sporting educational uh, and basically just getting together to have fun and, and that sense of serendipity uh, of what might happen. Uh, so that uh, that now still fuels our economy and our culture here in Melbourne. And so uh, that reimagining of uh, and giving ourselves the space for it to be a renaissance. We know we have the experience. We've got the people. Importantly, I think about Melbourne, we have a deep sense of civic pride. And I know as Lord Mayor, all through last year, so many people reaching out to say, we love Melbourne. It must be successful. It must thrive again. We want to see it uh, rebound. Uh, and I think that sense of dedication uh, and all of us working together more uh, deliberately to, to create that future we want gives us a great chance of, uh, you know, retaining uh, what we were really good at and do that on steroids and then have our hearts and minds open to what could be different. Fantastic. Um, well, thank you, Lord Mayor Sally Cap. We're super um, grateful of your time this morning and most of all grateful for the energy that you bring to your role. So um, I'll Thanks, hand Rory. over the reins It's lovely to, you. to have you home, Rory. <laughs> thank you, and I hope we can meet properly next <laughs> yes. time. Thank you. Take Good. care. Bye. Bye. Well, I now have the pleasure of interviewing Fiona Scanlon, who uh, is uh, one of the most talented people I've ever met and somebody who's had a long career uh, demonstrating her creative uh, skill set uh, from fashion design uh, through to ceramics, uh, the way that Fiona can curate spaces to, to make them into something completely different, always uh, makes my mind boggle and gives me tingles. Uh, I think Fiona describes herself as the a creative director at large because she has such enormous capacity uh, for bringing creativity to projects around town. And I did just want to note that Fiona has an incredible generosity of how uh, she applies her skills and experience and her talents. Uh, and uh, that's one of the reasons why we have this amazing exhibition called Uptown here in Melbourne. Uh, Robert and Fiona have done a sensational job. So Fiona, uh, the person who has creativity oozing out of your bones, uh, tell us how did Uptown come about? Well, thank you, Sally, for that beautiful introduction. Um, well, Uptown came about because uh, it was really, it started as a, a sentimental response really to um, what was going on uh, with COVID-19 and 
Robert and I being old mates, um, you know, we do this walking and talking and I think it was sort of the brainchild out of a walk and talk that we do. And um, we were both really struck with what was going on in Melbourne and how it had been brought to its knees. And um, so we sort of put a bit of a thread of an idea of putting an exhibition together. I know we contacted you um, and you know, basically we got into the mechanics of how it could happen and the City of Melbourne were fantastic in actually grabbing it and running with it. So we're really, really appreciative of that. Um, I think uh, further conversation when we started to sort of put the idea together, um, Robert and I probably developed an, this sense of responsibility that we should probably do this and a sense of giving back to a city that had been really, really kind to us and in turn we felt that we were very much the fibre of the city and in turn the fibre of the city was very much us. So we had this um, and, you know, Melbourne had always had a profound effect on Robert and I. So um, we kept walking and talking um, and, you know, I think as, you know, the months rolled along and we really sensed that Melbourne had been stripped so bare and was running low, um, we felt like we wanted to create an exhibition that was almost a gift to give back to the City of Melbourne and it it ended up sort of developing really as a love letter to Melbourne. And um, it was a time that we, as, as we started milling on the idea further, it was an opportunity to sort of address uh, where the city was at and um, where the artistic community was because of uh, COVID-19. And it seems like a great idea that we could use this opportunity to lace a few of these things um, together. And, um, and I think we used the opportunity really to mark time on you know, where we're up to, uh, how the city was feeling, uh, what we really felt we wanted to see and so basically they became some of the main ingredients of, um, of, of how it was, you know, how it came about and really the essence of really what started it. Fiona, I know that you and Robert and your walks and talks take you around the streets and laneways of Melbourne, so you have an intimate knowledge uh, of uh, the spaces around our city. Why did you both focus on that top end of Burke uh, and Spring Street for this uh, outdoor gallery? I think when you start organising something like this, you know, and you sort of have like all these sort of wild ideas of what could happen and I think um, it's that sense of how can you contain it, how can you give it the, the dynamic um, that you want and the more it gets spread out over locations it loses that mm -hmm. so um, and I think you know we were taking millions of photographs and sort of talking walking and talking um, and uh, I think every time we sort of ended up back, back in Burke Street it sort of just rang bells for us because it is a unique part of the city that has enormous amount of history. The history still exists with the people, the buildings, the businesses. Um, you only have to scratch the surface and we, you know, definitely spent a lot of time there talking to a lot of people. But 
you know, very easily, you know, everyone has this association with that end of town and, you know, as a girl growing up in Doncaster, we used to drive into the city to pick up pizza from Pellegrini's, you know, because we were so excited about Italian food and, you know, through to my parents going to um, uh, Florentino's for lunch most Fridays. I mean, you just go into that street and all this history whooshes back at you and, you know, talking to dear Carmel at Mitty's newsagent and she remembers my grandmother on radio when she used to work for 3UZ and it's just like, oh, my God, it's just this people and place and connections and it just, once we sort of had our mind around the finite section of road, we felt that we could really do a great job and um, really we just set about doing it from there. And you have. It's, it's absolutely amazing. There's so much about what you do, Fiona, that is uh, about expressing and sharing stories. Uh, and I, I really feel that in the exhibition as well. I know you have a particular attachment to Job Warehouse. Tell yes. us about that story because it's just wonderful and it's very Melbourne. Yes. Well, Job Warehouse um, has was, still is, a real fascination of mine, um, you, know, you know, whether... You know, early days when I started off in the fashion industry, you know, I was at Job House most days and, you know, there was always a bit of a dance that went on in terms of buying your fabrics and having coffee with um, the man who owned Job Warehouse and, you know, all those sort of things just made life more interesting and sort of, you know, going and hanging out with Yannick and having coffee and talking about sort of Europe and Eastern Europe where he grew up and, you know, um, I don't know, and just going in there was like an Aladdin's cave for me and it would just definitely spark my imagination but I also thought it really sparked my ability to negotiate because um, <laughs> they were very tough <laughs> and often I would get back to my studio and while, you know, Father Job Warehouse was taking me out for coffee, Son Job Warehouse was rolling up fabric that was full of holes, so I'd have to go back and fight my way out of something. So, look, it, it reminds me of crazy times and fun times and, you know, times that just really felt like, you know, I couldn't have done it any better. I just, I just loved going up there, having coffee, choosing my fabrics and going off to work for the day. Wonderful. You have your fingerprints uh, all over Victoria, really, in different ways, shape and form. Fiona, uh, tell us about why you think having a vibrant city centre is important. Um, I think it's important. Um, well, I, I don't know. I think in Melbourne we, we really use the city as a nucleus and I think that should the nucleus sort of break down, I think it would really have a profound effect on the people in the city. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we have to be very careful about the delicate nature of that. And I think probably with Robert and I walking around the streets looking for sites for, um, for Uptown, you know, you might have a memory that Collins Street was a great place and it is a great place, but it actually feels really dormant these days. And, you know, um, when we were looking for where Uptown should be, it it really felt like, I mean, it's full of international stores, which, you know, can be great on one level, but on another level, it sort of lacks that vibrancy 
And I remember Collins Street really, really well. And it had a lot more individual shop owners and it just felt, I mean, I think in council, as I'm sort of trying to defend a situation around near where I live now, it is the mix of things that keeps things fresh. And I think if we err one side or the other side, whether it's big buildings, you know, glamorous things, you will iron out the very fibre of the things that make it attractive and the little people that can work in some of these spaces. So I think I think the vibrancy is really about the mix. Love it. Mm. Fiona, last question, uh, which is about the artists and the pieces that you chose uh, for the exhibition. I just have to talk about just the most incredible coincidence because one of the pieces actually includes one of our councillors here at Town Hall and we didn't even know that until you'd chosen it and you'd hung it and then she saw it. And it's it's just a wonderful, I think, uh, example of what Melbourne's all about and that, that sort of uh, bringing together of people and, and opportunities. So artists and pieces, how did you go about it? Um, artists and pieces, well, you know, one of the... One of the uh, things about Uptown was that we were turning it around relatively quickly. So no artwork could be commissioned, but so we had to look within the stables of what people had. But I think the most important thing was that the artist had to have a connection. They had to be a Melbourne artist, yeah. had to have a connection with the with the city. And in that, um, it became like... Um, you know, it was a. It was very good to, you know, um, iron out, you know, beautiful art that maybe couldn't make it in. But I think it was also the blend of the artists, and we really felt that we had to represent quite a, a broad group. Um, of course, we had personal favourites that we just, you know, had to have, and that girl in particular floating above the city, Bill Henson. Well, when Robert had this vision of that going there, I went, oh yeah, that's. We've got to do that. So, um, you know, we were working on, you know, very uh, established artists through to probably more whimsical sort of artists, but we were trying to give it its dynamic sense through the combination of people and that all different people make up a city and um, the artists, it was quite good because quite often if you go to an exhibition, um, some artists are of a similar weight and I think that we have quite a diversity of weights of the type of artists that we have and I think for that reason, I think once again, it, um, it's the diversity in there that makes it interesting. Well, congratulations. City of Melbourne's been delighted to uh, support uh, Uptown and uh, I think more importantly, delighted to see the impact it's had on so many people if they've, as they've come in just for Uptown or whether they happen to have wandered by and seen it and been captivated by it uh, and you've given a real burst uh, to uh, Melbourne. So thank you to you and Robert. It's been yeah. delightful to speak to you today, Fiona, and I believe I'm handing the interviewing role over to you now. Okay, thank you. Bye, Sally. Thank you. Well, thanks for um, for uh, coming on to today's Zoom since we couldn't meet in the city. And um, I'm interviewing Kent Morris, who is part of uh, the um, Uptown exhibition um, with his beautiful piece that is above the parkade entrance uh, entitled Never Alone. 
Um, I thought, Kent, we could start off with talking about the Never Alone um, artwork, how how it was conceived, basically, where it's come from. Yes, well, thank you, and it's uh, great to be here. <laughs> Just like to um, acknowledge all the all the country that we're dialing in from and listening in from. I'm on the lands of the Alicut Nilum or the Boomerang people, and pay my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. Um, but Never Alone work second in that series, so it was developed during. Uh, the COVID lockdown, the number one, and I thought it'd be very interesting just to try and share my experiences and and look at, I guess, the lockdown experience through a First Nations lens and part of my process, which is, is always part of my life process, is just walking on country and understanding and looking and learning around the different aspects around the ecology plants and animals, how, how the landscape's been changed, the history of that country. And one of the things that happened on the walks was, of course, everyone wanted to go at, for the sunset walk. So it became almost like a Burke Street pre-COVID. There were so many people, it became a bit of an anxious kind of experience. Actually, yeah. <laughs> so started walking much later, around, around 9, you know, 9, 9.30, and much to my great delight, the another... Uh, inhabitant of this country was out at that time as well, and this is beautiful Nankeen night heron, very reclusive and secretive bird, who is now out and about, you know, in far more public areas, given yeah. that there was hardly anyone around. So it was a very interesting experience for me and just reinforced how important it is to think of our interconnectedness to all things. And in a, through a First Nations lens, you're never alone on country because you are interconnected to all the plants, animals, the, the land, sea, sky, you're part of something greater and you're not, uh, you're not isolated or just or just connected to humans. You're, you're a part of a much broader ecosystem and interconnected in a way that's significant and how, given the fact from my, in my way of thinking around COVID and that coming on the back of the bushfires and so many of the ecological uh extreme events we're seeing that, again, it seemed there's a link with COVID around the incursions in, into the natural world and, and deforestation and just a whole lot of things happening which are impacting negatively on the environment. And for a First Nations person and for community philosophy, that wouldn't happen because you are part of that ecosystem. You're not separate from it. Plants and animals, landforms aren't an economy. They're part of a living connection that we all have. And I wanted to try and express that, that idea. Mm. Well, I think you know I've I've conveyed to you that your that idea affected me personally when I was driving along um, Canterbury Road and I looked up and you know we're all sort of got a million things milling around in our head during COVID and I looked up and I saw Never Alone in front of me on Fitzroy Street and I just went oh thank you like you know like it just um, it really got me and um, I must say you know the broader the broader sentence of you you are never alone on country just really delights me. So um, I love I love the fact that there's that broader statement and that you've picked out that's just those few words and how it had such a, an effect on myself. So thanks. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. <laughs> and I think because, interestingly it was really originally intended to be up on that billboard as we came out of stage three, but what happened was it was up as we went into stage four 
And yeah. so a lot of people experienced it not in the wonderful way you you were able to do, but, you know, via the, it attracted a lot of, of media interest and social media interest. So a lot of people experienced it that way. And the response was, was a bit overwhelming, I, I might say. Um, but I was glad that that idea of how we can integrate a First Nations lens into our everyday life can really make it, you know, if we just rethink and reshape, it can make a, a significant difference. Well, it, you know, it was it was a great connection for me and I think for a lot of other people. So um, how do you feel about, I mean, we've spoken about the location of where it was in Fitzroy Street. Um, how, what are your thoughts about the location of it in Burke Street in the city? Because, you know, we asked you to do um, mm. Alone Part 2, um, which you grace, great, gracefully accepted. Um so yeah, what do you think about the positioning in the city and its and its relevance to you? Yeah, looks a good question. And recently, someone came up to me and said, "When we're on, you know, for the Invasion Day march, and walking down and looked across, and we saw the Never Alone, you know, the, the big banner, and just the the impact that that had in a different, you know, in a different context. But again, it's it's the city, and it's there's so many aspects of, of city life that." Uh, Intertwined on so many different levels. That was really interesting for me. That the you know the yeah. the, the march had gone down there and there'd been a view straight down the barrel to the to that work and and the, the sort of the uplifting impact it had to see that connection and community and cultural connection. Because of course, if you can't see your culture reflected in the built environment, well, you don't feel very welcome and you feel alienated from that environment. So one of my focuses, as you well know, is to try and bring these stories and, and uh, expressions and, and ideas into the public domain. So in terms of where it's positioned, I thought it was interesting driving into that car park. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's something you'll see every time you, you go in there and even just walking down um, through, whether you're walking down Burke Street and looking down into that into that car park, it's quite, it's quite unmissable and it, and it creates something which incorporates, again, different ways of thinking. I don't have something particularly pertinent around the exact location of it, but the location of the city and the visual spaces is something that intrigues me and around the messages that we're constantly being sent through the city and, and they're predominantly around consumerism and advertising, branding, et cetera, and how that, that impacts on our lives. But I think there's obviously a, a, a need for far more dedicated space for mm. the expression of cultural concepts, ideas, the exchanges of stories, and just to have people thinking in a different way that isn't constantly being bombarded by advertising. Yeah, I think probably something, I mean, because Robert and I spent so much time in the city, I think probably um, with uh, Salvation Army being there in Burke Street and really, you know, spending a lot of time, whether it's very early to very late in Burke Street, you realise that there is a real um, coexistence of, you know, the finer things of life and the not-so-finer things of life. And so Salvation Army really are, you know, struck with, you know, so many people that are, you know, have all sorts of situations, whether they're homeless or whether they've got drug problems or whatever. And I sort of felt that the positioning when you have so many people that are really living in that spot was almost like a reassurance to them about never being alone. Um, so it was probably something you were never you weren't even aware of, but um, it had that connection for me when it went up that you know you had these people that are sitting and eating in the street and being um, 
yeah, they're being homeless and, you know, they've got some unfortunate things going on in their life, but I felt it was potentially doing the same thing that it made me feel, actually, so. Yeah, well, hopefully that, that concept can can cross all all demographics, you know, that, that engage with it in, in one way or another. Mm. Have, um, have you got a, is there a, is there a place in Melbourne that you have a strong connection to? Oh, look, there's numerous places uh, and, look, the, Interestingly, I'm always drawn as, as I'm, I'm a Barkindji man, so Barker, we're people of the Darling River, we're river people. Unfortunately, uh, that river under great uh, distress and, and great uh, uh, danger, it's just in, 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 under great threat uh, now and, and it's seemingly constantly. And I live on the lands of the Yalakut Wheelam, which again refers to river people and water. So waterways are import, really important for me. Um, so the areas around Birarangma are really significant, particularly around the Curry Heritage Trust, which had a very strong uh, impact on my my development and my ability to connect more thoroughly and deeply with my culture, community, and family um, when it was up on uh, uh, on the King Street. But that area around the cultural exchange there, where you've got the the Curry Heritage Trust, of course, NGV at Fed Square, and just a lot of the you know Tandarum, a lot of the community and cultural events that go on there. So I'm very drawn up, in a, not surprisingly, <laughs> to art and cultural precincts and, of course, where there's an incorporation of First Nations um, art and culture as well. And, you know, through the Career Heritage Trust and, of course, NGV having those extraordinary uh, shows around First Nations art and culture. I mean, this weekend, if, if you're able, <laughs> see the, uh, the, the Destiny Deacon show and Destiny's got a beautiful work in Uptown and, of course, the, the wonderful Tiwi Islands show. So that combination of the water and culture for me is really significant. Yep. Um, have you got any suggestions for life in the city and how we can re-establish those very important things about environment, um, connectiveness, re-importance uh, re of being with each other? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm pretty big on a couple of things. Yeah. And one of them we've discussed just around having more representation, cultural representations within the built environment and making sure that the, the city is a safe and welcoming place culturally and, of course, to have far more uh, shared stories, knowledge and education around the history of place from, you know, and the First Nations history, the history of this country, the history that often is unsaid, unseen or unwanted. And, and that's not a negative around that, but it's just around understanding and, of course, the vibrant and continuing culture that has never vanished and, and has had, you know, been under stress and then re-generated, re re-engaged, but is always here and just have that more celebrated and also ecologically <laughs> just to see far more green spaces and to see far more green spaces that, again, incorporate um, native plants and, and the, the beautiful kind of array of plants. I have a, an unusual experience, and it may, may not be, but the, the ecological misrepresent or lack of representation ecologically, um, which is part of, again, in, in, never alone interconnectedness, it's so important. And to see... Um, so many of our, you know, fellow Melbournians and Victorians and Australians who don't really have a connection to the native and Indigenous plants of this area and this country, and they're so extraordinarily beautiful. And, of course, create that healthy ecosystem around insects and native birds, etc. and just to find a way, again, to rebalance, reshape how we view living spaces. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's a heavy uh, price was paid during the, you know, the ongoing colonial project, but certainly 
we can readdress that. And you can see some developments being made. We need to do a lot more to try and re-establish, to regenerate and find a way to explore, express and appreciate the uniqueness of the country that we're on. The plants and animals are, are the most beautiful in the world to me and, again, linked to such extraordinary cultural philosophies that are embedded in this country for tens of thousands of years, which would benefit us all, particularly where we're at currently with the, with the environment and how we interact. Yeah. Well, Kent, um, thank you. Um, our time is up on our relay, but thank you very much for speaking. Um, I find your words very inspiring. And I think there's a lot to think about how we go forward and um, that constant reminder that, you know, it's our responsibility to go back further than, um, you know, our, our colonial, uh, you know, you know, fathers having put their foot on the land. I mean, we definitely have to go back further and that connection is very important and um, your work and the way you speak, it really um, encourages so many people to look further. So I thank you very much. Thank you, Fiona. It's wonderful talking to you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, it's my great pleasure to now chat to Fleur Watson, who's the Executive Director and Chief Curator for the Centre of Architecture Victoria Open House Museum. Um, and Fleur has done so many amazing things around the built environment, exhibition spaces, architecture, and how we interact with, with place and space. Uh, and it's just a, going to be a fantastic discussion with her now. So, Fleur, I'd like to welcome you here today. Thank you, Kent. It's great to be here and, and so great to hear your conversation with Fiona just then. Well, look, fantastic. We've, <laughs> we were almost done our relay over the phone the other night talking about a whole array of, of we concepts. Did. And um, extraordinary ideas, and so hopefully we can share some of those today. Um, I think we'll just start off around and keeping the the thread around connection, um, and particularly not only around art, artists and architecture and the role they play in making place, but this wonderful area that you've always had an interest in around how we, as a community, are either involved or not involved um, in the creation of. of public spaces and buildings and the importance of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think really one of the things that's so important is how we empower people as citizens to really uh, get involved and to feel um, like they have a, a kind of civic right in terms of thinking about and, and reshaping the future. Um, and that kind of connectiveness, uh, I guess, obviously starts um, through artists and designers and creative practitioners really bringing those things to the fore, um, but also a kind of understanding and an expanded understanding of what the role is uh, specifically, I guess, in terms of architecture and design in, in terms of an agency to help us shape our cities. And, and that obviously is tied to place, um, the very land on which we live our lives. And so we need to kind of understand as a community, but also as uh, built environment professionals or expanded spatial practitioners, our history and to understand how we bring um, that First Nations lens, as you've just talked about, with Fiona and how we can reimagine uh, and understand our past, acknowledge it and listen and learn 
together towards uh, a better future. Um, and Kent, I guess one of the things that we spoke about briefly too was a uh, what you would call perhaps a bit of a, a movement that I really see particularly with younger the younger generation of architects and designers towards moving away from the idea of uh, architecture specifically as a singular building in the landscape and actually thinking about how architecture is connected to everything around place. And that obviously includes our natural world and uh, and in terms of addressing unceded sovereignty. Yeah, look, absolutely. And I think part of that concept we were discussing is around how whilst architecture and buildings are built to for, for humans to interact with and, and uh, to engage with in, in many different ways, sometimes the, in the development and design of those buildings or through the process, the focus becomes the building as such and not so much on the experience people might have or, again, people's interactions and what that history of that place may entail and can architecture have a more broader and uh, in-depth experience for, for the community in terms of how we interact rather than it being something separate from us, how are we all connected to it in a way that makes, I guess, this idea of livability um, and how important that's becoming for us in terms of our well-being. If we have a great focus on mental, cultural, spiritual health uh, currently and how can buildings, I guess, in, in, the, in the way you're talking, about, I guess, increase that or, or find a way to engage uh, the community around these these ideas. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think there's some really um, incredible people doing work in this area and we, we can look to um, people like Sarah Lynn Rees, for example, uh, Jeffa Greenaway, who are, are really kind of uh, grappling with these issues. You know, how do we actually start to think about um, a, a more integrated way and a process, a set of protocols, I guess, in terms of how we approach uh, Indigenous knowledge and thinking about that from the very beginning rather than it coming often halfway through the process. And, and education is also thinking about this. How do we educate our future designers and landscape architects and urban planners um, right from the get-go in terms of thinking about their connection to country and also the natural world uh, in how they approach City making, so I think um, that is really nascent, um, but really, really important to uh, support uh, the great work that's being done. But to really amplify that work, and and I think you can see it too with the again kind of going back. I know we spoke briefly about um, that kind of famous Cedric Price quote about maybe the answer to the problem is not a building. And um, I love that quote because I think it's it's still really relevant today. Is the answer to actually produce a building? And, and perhaps it is, but we need to stop there first and to think about the complexity of uh, the challenges that we face. And, and so, again, I think, um, you know, we can start to see how that younger generation of architects and, and all the way through are really starting to think 
about that ecology and diversity in terms of how they approach design and city making and, and to feel empowered in how they approach it from a more expanded viewpoint. Um, even in terms of the notion of personhood, which I think is, is so Im important to consider right from the get-go. So if we're thinking of the Biraram, how do you work with water as a living entity rather than trying to manage water uh, in terms of infrastructure? And, and that's a kind of big shift in thinking. No, it's an, it's an absolute and a, a very uh, important shift as well and, and across the board. I'm really interested around the talk of the the next generations coming through and and how in a lot of ways as a society and a community we're in their hands in a sense and you've done some ex extraordinary work at the design hub working with design students at RMIT I'd like to just ask you around that idea of uh, optimism for the future where you're seeing some of these ideas and concepts being either expressed or, or really engaged with it and, and what was what's the what's the new generation going to going to have for us in store yeah it's such a, a great and important word that optimism um because of course the challenges are, are great and uh it can feel really alienating and and your work never alone you know is so resonant in in that context i think at design hub um it was an extraordinary uh, time there with, with my colleagues to kind of think about um, how a gallery space particularly could operate quite differently, almost like a kind of a laboratory or a place to kind of test ideas. And I think there was this um, important connection, which I would say is really uh, still vital in terms of how education reaches out to uh, all of us, everybody, yeah. in terms of how we create, as you were describing it, a more welcoming, a more inclusive um, place that we can all live and work together. So really at Design Hub it was, it was a really fantastic space to test ideas that were really in process, often unformed yeah. uh, or in the very kind of early stages of being formed and to bring people into that conversation. So rather than a museum perhaps acting as a voice of authority, and we weren't a museum, I should say, but as a gallery space, that we were saying, we want to share these ideas with you. We're not quite sure what they are yet. We're trying to kind of grapple with how this might be approached, both from a teaching and learning perspective, but also from a, a, a cultural perspective and uh, very much from uh, a citizen perspective. How can we all come around this together in the gallery space and allow, I guess, an exhibition or a program or uh, a series of performances or a piece of writing to develop over time and to be porous enough to allow that um, point of reflection through it. And I think this is still really relevant today uh, in terms of education and, and understanding a more kind of expanded practice. I would absolutely agree with you. Now, we are getting quite close to the end of each short of time, so I've got one last question. What, what to you is the, your vision of a, a city of the future? Mm. Well, I think a city of the future is one where we all feel welcome and included and um, 
I think that Melbourne particularly is obviously, even if we take the context of the pandemic out of uh, the, the conversation just for a moment, it's clearly been under uh, pressure. It's rapidly growing. And so how do we make sure that in that growth, which offers opportunity and we can bring optimism to, there's also um, an ability to reimagine what it can be as a more inclusive city. And I think uh, certainly at the moment, uh, what's become really clear because of the pandemic is public space and who owns public space, who is it for, is it shaped simply by capitalist interests? You know, how do we actually grapple with the spaces in between buildings as well and to our landscape and our history and actually start to shape uh, a future together where it feels much more welcoming, much more accessible, and people have the ability to gather in public space, but also we need to urgently address housing, of course, and uh, the ability for people to access safe housing, affordable housing uh, that's, that's available to everyone. No, I would have to agree and we'll have to leave it there. Um, I'd like to thank you so much for that extraordinarily engaging conversation. It's a good time to make change right about now heading to the future. Thank you, Kent. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Well, it's my pleasure to interview Barry Barton. Of course, many of you would know Barry, entrepreneur and urban strategist, and as I've just discovered also, an incredibly um, incisive and critical writer from a piece that he's written for Uptown. So I'm going to dive straight in, Barry, because we haven't got a lot of time. Let's get stuck in. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk a little bit about the role of artists and designers in your work in the past, and maybe you can speak to one that you feel has been particularly successful. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, artists and designers are incredibly important to the work that we do because uh, our work uh, has to happen because if we don't think very carefully about cities and actually invest our energy, our money, our creativity in them, they tend to get worse. They're kind of like a sandcastle on the beach. You leave them alone and they just kind of decay. And so we're constantly thinking about how you invest in the built form of a city or in the social life of a city uh, to encourage it to be a better place. And more often than not, the projects that we work on involve both architecture uh, and design and, and public art as a way of bringing focus to the unique qualities of a place and kind of uplifting people's experiences of it. So I was thinking about all of the work that we've done around Uptown site, physical site, which I really wish I was there right now, but uh, as it happens, here we are. <laughs> um, and I was thinking of a project we did ages ago uh, with a design duo um, called Carl and Craig. Um, Craig. Carl was living in Melbourne at the time and we got a brief from a property developer to make a, a pretty dingy laneway down the side of Chinatown safe. And I think what he was expecting of us was to just kind of come back with some perfunctory lighting solution, which meant that um, people couldn't hide in the shadows. But we, we wanted to obviously kind of tick off that safety element as a hygiene factor, but we were very interested in the laneway um, and what it kind of represented as a strand that runs off Chinatown. And we were thinking about how great Chinatown is, but it is quite a quaint sort of old-fashioned version of what Chinatown is. It's catenary lighting and, um, you know, it's a very sort of old and antiquated version of China for what is essentially a new Asian, Asian city in, in Melbourne. And so what we ended up doing was getting Carl and Craig to design a beautiful family of 
neon lights that were a really good riff on the kind of cultural landscape of Chinatown. Uh, so they represented the seven major languages um, and cultures that that exist around Chinatown. It's not just Chinese people. Um, and they just brought such joy and, and life to such a grotty place and lifted an experience of Chinatown, not just out of the kind of rut in terms of providing safety, but actually just making it really interesting and enjoyable. So that kind of stuff, which on one hand does seem whimsical, uh, is, is deeply important because it really kind of... Um, gives people memories and it um, improves their experience of a place that might otherwise be unremarkable. Mm. And and is a very responsive uh, way to work too. And I guess kind of brings me to this next question, which is really around this rapid growth of Melbourne. Um, And, you know, your view in terms of the way that property development and um, I guess the massive property boom in Melbourne, um, do you feel that that has shifted or perhaps um, hampered the ability to do those kind of projects? It's maybe taken a bit of the soul out of, uh, out of those projects? It has. Uh, absolutely it has. I mean, I'm not too sentimental about cities. I feel like most cities need to grow. It's very hard to just maintain an equilibrium. Um, And it's almost impossible to shrink, which is what we've seen in cities like Detroit. And so I think that the growth in Melbourne is good, but it is a new kind of Melbourne. Um, You know, like it's we can't continue to add Mallorca house buildings and um, everything's just a Flinders Lane. Like there do need to be new typologies and there need to be um, new kinds of places that are created. And I suppose what often happens when a market has real like velocity and it's moving so quickly is that often the social nuance, the community relation, um, the the sophistication and refinement of the development is lost in the speed, you know, like where the, the measure of financial success in property is usually about how quickly you can bring something to market and sell it. And so those kind of more textured and I think important place creation elements which should exist in new stock in a, in a city have been lost in the kind of frenzy of, you know, build them high, watch them fly, which has happened in Melbourne. Um, but I don't think it's a catastrophic mistake. Like, yes, there are some, in, you know, some buildings which are not great, some new buildings which are not great, but the way that a city works is pretty relentless. And over time, those buildings will begin to decay. They'll get a patina, they'll begin to look better. And people from Melbourne will insert their lives upon that building within that building and it will begin to feel like it belongs rather than it's this kind of extraterrestrial new thing that's landed. So with cities, we do have to be patient. You know, they take hundreds if not thousands of years to evolve. And so all of the new stuff that we might look at in Melbourne today and say, like that's not really us. Well, um, it will become us over time. We will make it part of, of us. You know, there's a saying in New York, there's no such thing as a bad old building and no such thing as a good new building. And I think the same thing kind of applies to, to Melbourne's perception of, of, of new stuff. Mm. And certainly in, in that ability to insert ourselves into the city, we need to feel welcome. You just had that conversation with Kent about it being a welcoming place, an accessible place. And maybe that gets us to this, um, these terms that are used a lot at the moment, particularly in terms of development projects around building community, livability, the integration of art and design. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that uh, and, you know, perhaps where it's being done well or, and where maybe the pitfalls are. Yeah. 
those words that you just trotted out there, um, livability, even inclusivity, integration, design excellence, you know, in the dark arts of property, those words are used so much that I feel like they've lost their ethic or their meaning and we need to rediscover what they actually mean and what it's going to take to deliver those kind of qualities in a place. Um, it's a, a good thing, I believe, that government has demands on property developers for those kinds of qualities because there's a lot of money to be made in property. And when you build a building, you do subject everyone who sees that building to your building. And so to me, it seems kind of fair that the government should have some requirements around those qualities. But they're very hard to define and they're very hard to deliver. And so what tends to happen is um, the property developer, who again is trying to move fast uh, and is trying to save costs, does like the bare minimum activity to justify those qualities. We call it the flat whiting of the ground plane, which is when a, a developer is supposed to deliver some sort of food and beverage retail and they just do a really mediocre cafe that only serves a bad flat white. And there's a lot of that kind of box ticking that goes on, which is a, a real pity. And I think government does need to get better at expecting more of developers and trying to define those characteristics a bit more kind of acutely so that they can hold developers to account. But the other agent of, of power in this conversation is also the citizen, you know, the end user of these places that are created. And I think we need to get better at advocating for the sort of places that we want to see. Communities are very good at pulling things down that they don't want. They're not very good at um, suggesting an alternative. And I'd love to see that really evolve, particularly in a city like Melbourne, which is good socially and has a tightly knit community, to get better at thinking about what we want rather than just throwing stones at what we don't want. Mm. We've got only about three minutes, but I really want to get to this point, Barry, around platforms and particularly the online space. Uh, we had a chance to talk about that very briefly, but can you talk about uh, the impact on what you call airspace um, on cities? Yeah, sure. Um, airspace is a term uh, which was coined in Verge magazine about a year ago, and it describes a canon of design that could exist anywhere. It's like a design vernacular without geography. So the sorts of things you need to imagine, you can see all around Melbourne at the moment, all around the world, that's the whole point. Uh, it's the way that apartments are styled on Airbnb to maximise visitation. It's um, a flat white, it's a craft beer, it's uh, in Melbourne an exposed globe with like a yellow kind of doobie whacker that hangs it to the ceiling. This is a sort of um, look and feel of a space which no matter where you are in the world you feel comfortable in, and the, the internet through Instagram and even sites like Airbnb propagates that kind of design vernacular because they want people to feel that they associate with the look and feel of a place as they move through it. But the, the consequence of that, the, the collateral damage is actually um, the uniqueness of, of the look of a place. You know, I feel like the internet is a tool that is homogenizing our design. It's collecting people's aspirations and um, an aesthetic kind of sensibility and aggregating it. And so there's this great kind of flattening of how things look and feel. Like I, I don't want Melbourne to look like Portland, but it mm -hmm. kind of has quite quickly become that over time due to the internet. And so I think our job is a creative community that exists and lives locally and designers that have the opportunity to look about them and say, what can I pull that is unique from the soil and turn it into a you know, design outcome is, is incredibly important and I don't want to lose the Melbourne-ness of Melbourne or, or the uniqueness of any city because the internet rails against it. Mm. 
Yeah, that actually that idea of locational specificity yeah. um, that we, we talked about is, is so um, resonant. And perhaps, I guess, just to wrap up, mm. in that case, uh, if we take the binary of Melbourne and Sydney out of the equation, what yeah. kind of um, cities do you think are doing that well yeah, and have sure. that kind of locational specificness? I, just one point before I answer that directly is that Melbourne is one of the world's most livable cities constantly. And I don't think it does a great job talking about how it achieved that generously to other cities. It's not good to put a trophy above your head and say, we won. It's good to say, this is what we know. And how can we help you, um, Mumbai or Sydney or any other city that might actually benefit from Melbourne's experience? So, you know, I think Melbourne is quite, um, unfortunately, quite selfish with the knowledge that it has about how to live well. Um, but the sorts of cities that I think it needs to kind of, it needs to break free from the shackles of comparing itself to Sydney. Sydney has a beautiful harbour and a big international airport and it is really great, but it's so incredibly different. And so I really wish Melbourne could kind of look at the Copenhagen's, um, you know, the Osaka's of the world that, you know, Portland's and Seattle's are worth kind of having a look at and establish this much more resourceful kind of ingenious brother and sisterhood of cities that don't rely on a stunning piece of water for their credibility. You know, I think Melbourne has better company to keep than um, than Sydney, quite frankly. Mm, that idea of sharing our knowledge and and it being shared with us is a really powerful idea. And something which should happen more as a result of COVID. I'm so glad we haven't talked about COVID too much, but, um, you know, we've learned that if we act together, we can achieve great things. Uh, that if we share our knowledge quickly and generously, uh, it's better for everyone, which is the opposite of like isolationist Donald Trumpy kind of thinking. And so it's that it's funny that this pandemic has shown the the right way for the world, I believe, in the, the next few decades. Such a compelling note to end on. I've got the time. So right. we're out of time, unfortunately. But um, Barry, you've left us with lots of really important things to think about. So thank you so much for your generous conversation. Uh, thank you, Fleur, and for good questions. I really appreciate the chat. See you soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Hey, Barry. Hey, Eugenia. Can we just start? I guess so. I, want to. <laughs> I need to start. I'm nervous about talking to you. Um, Why? I only watch you from a distance. I don't know you well. And you have a fantastic way of understanding society and representing it in the artwork that you do. Um, and I think there's a real kind of civic discourse to your work, which is, is so important. Um, and particularly in a city like Melbourne, which I think in terms of public art can kind of gravitate towards the superficial and the aesthetic and, and not really kind of plumb the um the depths of what we need in society and think about some more kind of um important themes so i i'm really going to enjoy this talk but you don't always cover light-hearted topics and so i'd imagine it's going to be interesting um let's give it a shot let's, let's try and go deep in 10 minutes yeah absolutely how deep can we go yeah um i don't want to just talk about covid but i do want to kind of um start there uh an idea that i've been really thinking about a lot um, since the pandemic is that it has been like an x-ray for our society and it has shown us where we are sick, uh, where we need to fix. Um, do you kind of agree with that as one of the possibly positive, um, you know, byproducts of the pandemic? Yeah, I definitely do. I think um, I've been thinking about ideas of labour and equality, I guess, in my work for the last 
few years or so. And 2020 really did um, show us all of these kind of um, structural deep inequalities that were already here in our society. So issues of, I guess, outsourcing labour and on-demand work and, um, you know, I guess kind of temporary visas, all of these things that in some ways are very sort of um, hyper-fast-paced digital platform economy is based on. And I think that uh, last year, you know, us, you know, those of us who could work from home, um, who were kind of fortunate enough to, I think it really showed that there were these huge schisms that perhaps we didn't realise before when we were able to kind of be mobile and order our food and, and travel, you know, wherever we wanted to with great ease and, and with um, a great kind of, I guess, in, in sort of false cheapness, I think, to the way that we kind of live our lives. So I think it's a very complex and difficult problem that um, we haven't solved and we're still in this place. But I think that, as you say, the positive is that perhaps we're all a bit more aware of these things and, and trying to kind of think about how we can sort of shape and rewrite our cities and our societies and our kind of... Um, our global culture and in it in a kind of more egalitarian way. Yeah. Why does it take something like a pandemic to wake us up? You know, it's quite shocking when you see a statistic like you're twice as likely to die from lower means um, in a pandemic. Um, and increasingly there's talk about health justice in our cities, which is that there are some neighbourhoods which are so intense and hostile that the people there are just weathered. And so they actually lack the biological resilience and the health that they need to combat a, um, you know, something like corona and they're more likely to die. And it's it's shocking and I feel like it maybe um, at large jolts us to action. Mm. But as you pointed out, these problems existed before COVID. Why have we been so lazy um, or asleep at the wheel in terms of, as a society, in terms of, why don't we fix them? I think, you know, and trying to go yeah, deep in the short time that we have, <laughs> I think it really is down <laughs> to... Really deep. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, these, I guess, these structural inequalities and, and I guess the, the kind of weight that largely communities of colour bear, you know, people who are from migrant communities, uh, First Nations people, black people, um, people who are kind of doing the majority of the heavy lifting when it comes to care and when it comes to caring for others, uh, cleaning our cities, driving the buses. Um, I think, unfortunately, the people who make policy and city decisions don't tend to be those same people. Like they tend to be, I guess, people who have the benefit of, um, you know, strong education and upwardly mobile. So it's actually, it's difficult because the people that most need support and are most vulnerable, they don't often have that connection to the halls of power. They don't have a voice. So I guess um, probably only now when we see how interconnected we really are in terms of, you know, the UK strain and, you know, how globalised we are as as an as a world, you know, the fact that like um, one, you know, Europe can be so sick and we do feel it over here, even if we are kind of locked down and we can't travel, it shows us that we are actually this kind of like international lung, like when, when part of us is sick, 
Um, we all feel it. So I think we now can't ignore can't ignore these kind of. Um, it's not an over there problem. It's actually something that we're all experiencing, and, and we feel it, you know, here in Melbourne as well. Yeah, I feel like for us to get on top of the problems that we face as a society, we need to think far away from ourselves geographically. We do need to concern ourselves with people on the other side of the world. Uh, and we need to think far ahead of ourselves in time. You know, we can't just think of what's likely to happen to us or potentially the other generation that's to come. Um, we need to be bigger geographically. Uh, um, tell me, why is the work that you do important within the context of like how a city evolves? Wow, big question. <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't know if I can, um, I don't know if I can deem my my work important or worthy, but I guess I'm driven to make it because, like you said, I think that um, there's this real importance in connecting. I think you were talking with Flo before about the importance of locality and specificity. Mm. I find it's incredibly important, especially in this really polarised time, to connect the, the hyper-local and the kind of geographically specific with the global because I feel that there's been this huge sort of schism that's come through like populists like Trump and even our kind of homegrown politics where we don't see each other anymore. We're kind of in our echo chambers and we're sort of only, you know, kind of preaching to the converted or, or sort of talking to people like us through social media. And that's a very dangerous thing because it means that we forget how to have dialogue across difference. Mm. And my work... I think, you know, at its core is about trying to find dialogues across difference. So trying to kind of find solidarities, um, you know, with, you know, between people of different, uh, I guess, class backgrounds or kind of, you know, racial backgrounds. I think that's so urgent these days. So for me, I guess, um, it's sort of, yeah, the driving factor, what I feel like I can contribute to a city and a city like Melbourne, which I love, which I, I guess, um, you know, I value is a place where there is great diversity and there are spaces where you can kind of um, rub up against people that aren't like you. I think that's so incredibly important. And that's, um, you know, why I loved what you were saying before about um, talking about this idea of like, trying to combat airspace and sort of generic um, look and feel of cities. I think that's so critical. Like we really need to hang on to the things that make our city what it is. And it is those spaces of like grit and difference and diversity. Why is it important to hang on to that? Because um, you have clearly a, a love for Melbourne and I don't think you should underestimate the role of the of people like you and the quality of your work in helping bring to the surface the sort of things that we need to understand and process while we're creating cities. Like I, um, cities do not come easily. Like uh, you, you really need to address some difficult topics. And I think that within the formal city creation world of developers and government, there's this very like at a distance kind of superficial way of understanding, for example, diversity. You look at a spreadsheet, there's the age segmentation and the ethnic balance and you're like, oh, it's an interesting pluralist neighbourhood, but you don't understand 
what it really feels like and its beauty and its challenges. So I think the work that um, you do as a visual artist is so incredibly important in reframing these problems and opportunities and, and making people aware of it in a way which isn't just so institutional and, and formal. Um, but to sorry, get back to my, my question, which is why, why is it important for something to be hyper-local and what, what, what would happen to us if we lost a little bit of Melbourne-ness in terms of how the city feels and looks and functions? Yeah, I think um, I think the hyper as long as the hyper local does coexist with that kind of, in, I guess that awareness of like context and where we sit and where we sit sort of regionally within Asia and also those connections to what's happening internationally. I think those I think those things are what I value about Melbourne. Actually, like the kind of it's much more than the like great coffee or the you know kind of. Um, geometric kind of fashion or the art it's those things that I you know I do love but I also I guess I love the um, I don't know there's like an awareness within within our city of like this history that's sort of built on you know kind of a bit of do-it-yourself ingenuity Um, I guess yeah the importance of the city from the 80s onwards when it, you know, wasn't, it didn't used to be this site where uh, artists and designers were kind of uh, attracting greater cultural life. I think that's super interesting and I think really important to Melbourne. I think if we didn't have that, and I guess we've had a sense of it a little bit, well, actually quite a lot since um, the lockdown, you know, this sort of city where we can't go in and sort of, I guess, be exposed to all of, of those kind of uh, cultural engagements that we love. Um, I don't know. I think, yeah, it would be a very changed place and a very kind of um, maybe beige place. <laughs> which yeah. Yeah. really time to dig in, you know. Um, the, the velocity, like the, the creativity needs to be ratcheted up because it's mm-hmm. one of the best tools that the city has to um, reconnect with itself. Like it's a bit of a renaissance time for Melbourne. Um, mm-hmm. I think what was interesting about the renaissance was it was a period of time where the thinkers and the creative practitioners felt like they'd lost touch with their future, um, which was a good future. And they didn't just do new things. They also thought, what's good about what we have been have been doing historically and how do we take that forward with some mm-hmm. new future? Yeah. Do you think that the creative landscape in Melbourne is going to get a reshuffle and more energy to, 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 help and dig, to help dig the city out of a rut? I think that there's already a huge kind of, I guess, discussion and consideration amongst, you know, the kind of artistic and creative community here about what we value, about what we want to prioritise in such a sort of, I guess, quite a conservative landscape um, especially federally, and a very kind of tough economic climate for artists and, and arts organisations um, at every level. I think, yeah, I know, you know, within my own practice and with my company AFIDS, um, we're really trying to think about how we want to do business and our business is the making of art. So kind of thinking about how we actually want to kind of set up structures that are about greater collaboration, you know, amongst, you know, not only in terms of art production, but I think in terms of working with like-minded organisations and other artists, like the power of actually kind of, 
yeah, again, finding those commonalities and solidarities and working together rather than in this kind of competitive meritocratic kind of way, which I think is, um, yeah, very much that neoliberal, you know, market forces, only the strong survive. Really, really deep now, um, if you mentioned <laughs> but we're out of time. So I just want <sighs> to really thank you um, for going deep with me in 10 minutes. That was... Thanks, Barry. We, we gave it a shot, hey? Yeah. We <laughs> Thanks for having me. Great. Have a great day. See ya. Hello, Michael. Hello, Eugenia. How are Hi, you? Hi, Michael. I'm very, I'm really well. How are you? Good. Uh, I'm, I'm missing very much meeting everybody in person at the, uh, at the glorious M Pavilion car park. That would have been very exciting. So uh, I'm not, I'm not as enamoured of this uh, life on Mars. The digital. Zoom dungeon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's too much deja vu, isn't it? Kind of coming back to this space. But anyway, pleased that we can be talking together, even in this form. Likewise. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, Michael, um, I'd love to, I guess, hear you talk about the importance of the city to your creativity and to your professional life because you you still have a, a studio in the city and you were also part of that kind of cultural renaissance in the 80s, bringing some life to the CBD. I, I wondered if you could speak about why, you know, kind of living and or, or working in the city amongst other designers and creatives is so critical to what you do and perhaps, you know, what's different now versus then when you first yeah. moved in? Look, I, I think there are, two, there are two reasons, and it was interesting that, you know, a number of the early speakers at this event, um, uh, Robert Buckingham and, and Millie Caitlin um, and Susan Conn, talked very much about, you know, the, the role of, of the role of history, the role of identity, you know, the role that a city plays in terms of, a locale identity for you know for people that that live in it and move through it and the importance of that occurring uh, over time and and Robert at the outset of this was lamenting very much uh, really important experiences for him uh, at at places that no longer exist and 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 then we heard obviously you know Barry talking about the the issues around you know velocity and you can't you can't freeze the city um, and cities there's a you know cities do need to grow uh, as we understand them and when they don't like Detroit at the moment uh, it's very concerning and the dynamic doesn't seem to work that way at all well and then I, that brings me I think to the to answer your question the other way of thinking about cities uh, you know uh, this has been articulated by many people. Um, Edward Glazer in his book, um, The Triumph of the City, talks about the notion of city as an experiment. The city is a site of experimentation. And anthropologists like um, Madeleine Balmer talk very interestingly about the idea that if you look at the evolution of human beings, which is a 21 million year journey, and for, for the, uh, you know, the, the, our particular set of, of humans, we're probably about two million years old. Um, and we have in this more recent of times, 100,000 years, 150,000 years, started to create environments that are really not part of nature at all. They are for us that we make ourselves. And that and, and these these are unique in terms of the you know in terms of spaces on earth. So uh, 
the idea of a city as a site of experiment, and it was lovely to hear Fleur talk about her experience with with her team uh, at the you know at the Hub Gallery at RMIT, and that being a site for experimentation um, and and exploration, a laboratory. And so there's a lot of talk around the a lot of thinking around the idea that that's that's what a city is. Um, and and I'm enormously drawn to that. I did uh, grow up in Melbourne, watching it transform from a very, very um, empty, often violent CBD into one that was completely full of of the laughter and 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 conversation of a very diverse group of people eating and drinking on the pavement, which really prior to Rob Adams and his transformation early on at Melbourne City Council was in fact illegal. So what it's, I it's thought, huge how how much that policy really shaped the, the life of the city, right? Well there's two. It's it wasn't top down. And I think the genius of Rob and his team was that they were being inspired, I think, very much uh, drawing on the work of people like Jane Jacobs and Jan Gell. And they were saying, you've got to give people space. It's not about, well, so what, and in a way back to what uh, uh, um, I guess Rory was talking about and, uh, you know, the, the it, it's uh, allowing people license to do things, giving them the opportunity to create. And, and, uh, and Barry was talking about a similar thing. So uh, th- there's an incredible role that government can play, and I think it was interesting to hear Sally Cat earlier on talking about the you know the opportunities that they're looking to to, to make possible for people in the city. Um, what I saw uh, in the transformation of Melbourne was bottom up. So the so government had an enormously powerful role to play in in making sure the legislation was not a series of closed doors that it really allowed people entree entree to experiment and to fail. And then the other side of it was uh, watching a lot of people around me, you know, fellow students studying, people coming back from overseas, just uh, just experimenting. And I think, in a way, and, and and in a way back, I think to possibly to Barry's point about maybe Melbourne is very selfish in terms of how it guards its knowledge around its livability. It may be that we don't actually even reflect on how we got here. Um, we may not actually know. So, you know, I, I think there's that some, that's something we need to think about as well. Um, Space but, for reflection to kind yeah, of Yeah, but, but I think to your point, that experimentation, you know, I, I grew up, I, I, was, I grew up in New Zealand and then came here broadly to study architecture. But New Zealand is where it's different to, to Australia is there is a kind of obsession with innovation and creativity. People do it in their garages. And it's very evident at the moment with the America's Cup that's going on in Auckland, where they've literally, through a series of radical experiments, all the boats are flying at double the speed. Boats are is a wind-powered boats ever flew before, and it's New Zealand technology. So I think I'm very infected by that idea. You know, I think from an Australian perspective, one might just call that appallingly naive. But I just love this idea that that the future is not written. So let's experiment and let's not try to hurt as many people as possible. And let's, you know, let, let, let's, let's include as many people as possible or not. But I'm in love with that proposition. And for me, that's what the city means. Can we um, segue into your current research and work with the Turning Circle? Because I think you're kind of this idea of the sort of bottom up and thinking about, I guess, the cultural fabric of the city seems to be something that you're exploring, um, you know, 
and and maybe taking some of these ideas about um, what is inherent or what is important in in the centre of, of the city in terms of its artistic and kind of cultural life. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a bit more about your work with the collective. Yeah, well, I, um, thank you. The I, I think, and, and this is a project that I'm working on at the moment with Wendy Lasker and with um, Millie Caitlin and with um, Robert Buckingham and uh, and with a number, in fact, of stakeholders in, in, in the city. So... This is, I mean, look, it's talking very much to the issues that you've been talking about as well in terms of uh, how do we, if, if the city represents a set of opportunities to include the voices of very diverse groups of people, you know, the other side of this, which in a way comes back a bit to what Barry was saying was, you know, how do we, uh, how can we translate that? In fact, you were talking about this in a way, how do we translate that also into something that is sustainable in terms of, creative production that becomes part of local production and authentic production and very much to this idea of, you know, at the moment we're enormously, um, the, the a, a sort of major influence is the, the Instagram and, and uh, the Instagrammable moment and the idea of these very universal trends. And the only way you can compete with that is by having a very powerful local culture that is productive. And so it's, it is, it's experimental, it's dynamic, you don't know where it's going to go, but you need to support it. So very much as a result, you know, March, April, May last year, it became evident, and a number of people have talked about this today, that the, the city's shutting down, the city's dynamic comes from people, not from buildings. You know, I loved uh, Fleur's earlier uh, reference to Cedric Price and this notion, the answer of the problem may not be a building. And he was famous for these sort of quips. Uh, but uh, in Melbourne's case, it's very true. And, and as Barry was saying, um, a city like Sydney, for instance, and cities like Sydney have extraordinary natural collateral. Melbourne's strength, it has none. I mean, this is being enormously unfair to the, to, you know, to the beautiful wildlife flora and fauna. But, you know, I, I'll excuse myself by saying, well, uh, I'm, I'm a New Zealander, so I, I have to be excused for making appalling observations. But, um, you know, Melbourne, Melbourne was a swamp. So the, the solution to Melbourne becoming a really exciting place to live was certainly never the buildings or the environment. It was, it's the people. And, and we've done some good things. We've done some bad things. Uh, the Turning Circle Collective project is what kind of city do we want to live in? Where do we want to go? We believe that critically it needs to involve a lot of local production, creative experimentation, how do we create a space for that in the city? And so it's yeah. very much the project. And uh, our feeling is that rather than writing about it, um, and very much like Robert and Fiona with their project Uptown, do it. You know, so they haven't written a paper. They've actually they've made something we can all come and visit and experience directly. So our thinking was very much along their lines. Um, can we create a case study where we can uh, bring emerging practitioners, designers, into, into the city and give them messy spaces. This is, we're not talking about co-working spaces. We're not talking about rows of desks. We're talking about places for people to produce. Well, a variety. And obviously that's, that's um, all the way from any form of uh, design production through to, through to dance and creative production. So it's active 
experimentation space rather than just theoretical kind of research. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and, and spaces, uh, for, and, and this again is a, a theme, I guess, of, of, the, of the speakers, um, spaces for people to connect, to converse, to present. So uh, I think we're really, we're, we're thinking a lot about how important that was in the way we grew up in Melbourne and how uh, certainly this the, the the current pandemic situation clearly shows us what the city looks like when those people aren't there and 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 you know in a way sadly for me this is not the first time because I saw what it was like before any of these people started their cafe so I know viscerally how important and how fragile that has always been and and now that's become I think sadly in a way a universal experience for all of us um, to see how brittle it is. Yeah, hopefully through your work with Turning Circle, we can kind of hold on or at least create the space for, you know, I guess these new experiments and new kind of activations within the city to take place. Well, well, yeah, and, and of course it's enormously dependent on, on practitioners like yourself who are, you know, driven to create work, who see the idea of their creativity as being enormously central, not only, you know, to their own identity and, but, but how they contribute as part of a part of a community. And I, and, and that, you know, that's enormously generous because it involves an incredible amount of energy and also kind of personal displacement in a way. And, and I think we want to build on that generosity. Michael, I have to, um, I have to wrap up and hand the baton over to you now actually to, to continue the conversation. It was really lovely to chat and, and too short, but hopefully it's only the beginning. I, I look, I hope so. And look, thank you so much. Thank you for your, uh, your great questions. And, uh, um, one day we uh, hopefully there'll be another event like this, and we'll, I'll finally get to meet all these people uh, <laughs> yeah. in, in, in three dimensions. Look forward to it. Correct. That's right. The three-dimensional experience. <laughs> Thank you so much, Eugene. Bye. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Uh, right. I will now move. I'll change hats, and I would love to introduce uh, Atika, um, Atika Yumi Salma. Welcome. And, Hi, thank you. And Atika is a uh, an interior designer uh, and and a, a, a creative practitioner, and is working. Recently graduated from Monash uh, from out of interior architecture, I should say, and is working for a, uh, uh, a a practice in town, but also has her own practice, and uh, has uh, very has built, I guess, a very uh, powerful profile in terms of your your contribution and and wanting to be very much involved involved in a bigger so in a bigger creative and cultural discourse, um, and, and that's so so that was uh, something I guess that's obviously been very important for you. And I, I guess I'd like to start by by saying welcome. And do you want to talk just just initially about how what it is. Uh, in terms of your experience that has led you to um, be strongly interested in, in design, but also as a, as a design activist. Yeah, thank you for having me, Michael. Um, well, I think I've always been drawn to design and sort of the impact it has and it, it can contribute in solving ideas and problems. And I think a lot of my interest into developing my own practice as well as working as a proper interior designer stemmed out of my research in uni 
and also concerns a lot about what I, why I'm interested in the city. And I guess, um, I guess uh, I'm interested in the city in coming as someone who has never lived in the city and came from a very small town and grew up in a country where it was very tiny. So there was no real, real city. When I moved to Melbourne, what really drew me was the life and the opportunities that the city had. And it, sorry. Um, I was going to say, you're not alone in that because Sally Cap, the Lord Mayor, described herself earlier on in this session as girl from the suburbs. So, you know, the, 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 the idea of, uh, of how big cities are and, and that you, you, can, you can come from other parts of the city and really experience its centre in very different ways, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's an experience that, that uh, a lot of people have. It's very much a real part of what it is to be in, in, in a big city. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, yeah, it's just such an incredible space to be able to test ideas and, uh, and sorry, I'm just backtracking a little bit to why I'm interested in the city is just that I've always found that it was coming from a very small town and being in the city has allowed me to see what my impact as a person has on that space and how that space has an impact on me and that's been a very core sort of design methodology that I have when I'm approaching anything I design. It has always been to understand the inter-influential inter impacts people have on spaces and what spaces have on people. And a lot of the projects that I'm concerned with have always been tied to sort of my own personal experiences I've had in the city as well. Do you, um, I, I was, uh, in talking to uh, Eugenia about the the role of the city as a kind of a site of experiment or the city that itself is an experiment. Is that something that resonates with you at all? Do you see this opportunity to experiment as being uh, a part of a part of your work or a part of the, the 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 possibility, the creative possibilities for you? Yeah, definitely. I think cities in particular offer an opportunity for to reach a lot of people from different backgrounds. And essentially, and when we were having this conversation earlier before, you sort of mentioned the city being sort of like this large community center and different people from different backgrounds being able to contribute and initiate very different conversations and have different opinions. The city is also just a space where there's so many more opportunities as well. Mm -hmm. And the density allows you to have sort of, you you can have a larger, I guess, with the projects that you do. Yeah, do you, it seems that, you know, an, uh, the another important element in 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 the pursuit of your work and, and thinking about your connection to the city is, is community and, and obviously different communities that you're a part of. And you've talked a little about, you know, the, the, the influence that the Monash experience has had on you. Do you want to um, talk to the, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, how you see the role of community as being both in terms of the city, but also for you as a, as a creative practitioner. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think at the core, like I mentioned before, um, my interest has always been about the experience of people. And I think that follows through in sort of the commercial work that I do as an interior designer, as a lot of the buildings that we design have been community buildings and I've been involved in a lot of community-based projects and designing for specific 
type of demographic and catering to specific people's needs has always been a, a real interest for me. And I think I've sort of brought that aspect of community design into the ex more experimental work that I do as well. And being able to create spaces or create artwork that foster uh, moments of interaction and sort of create opportunities for people to get to know each other has really important and yeah is a main sort of focus of what I try to bring within my work as well. Do you and and how how does um, uh, the idea of if, if the city is uh, in, in its biggest sense can be thought of as being very much a kind of uh, ideally a celebration of, of diverse voices and diversity then spontaneity then the idea of adventure does that is that something that factors into your experience of the city or, or and you is, is that something that you feel can help feed the way that you think creatively and, and the projects that you're involved in yeah I think um, a lot of the time with a lot of the work that I've tried to do collaboration has been a big part of it and I think the city bringing together a lot of creators and people from different industries as really contributed to the development of ideas in general. And I think the sort of diversity the city offers um, only serves to enrich sort of the conversations that we have around creativity and ideas and concepts. Hmm. Do you, um, and, and, and thinking about this, this notion of, of connectivity and community, there's and, and and coming going back to the very early observations that Robert was making at the at the outset. You know this idea of memory. It, when you, I mean, I have and a number of people have talked about their first experiences of Melbourne and and uh, and the things that have stayed with them. Um, how? Where does memory sit in terms of your experience in relation to Melbourne? I mean, what what do you recall as being? Are there formative experiences early on uh, for you here that in a way? you know, started to shape uh, either your practice or your connection to the city? Um, I think what I found, I, before sort of moving to Melbourne, I had travelled a lot to a bunch of different cities, but I think what Melbourne really had in terms of an impact on me and me as a person, I think, has been the people. And I felt that a lot when I first came to the CBD and had the experience of interacting with such, such, uh, I think Melbournians in general are just such open people and have been always welcoming and ready to always have a chat with you and talk about ideas. So um, my first few experiences of being in the CBD have always been because of the people that I've met along the way. Yeah, yeah. Do you, uh, what do you, in terms of thinking about your own practice and and I guess what the city can offer, what for you do you feel would be the other, other sort of either the next important things you'd very much like to be involved in or the next kind of either relationship you'd like to have with the city or or things that you would like to see occur in Melbourne that for you would be talking to some of the, some of the ideas that a number of people have talked about uh, in terms of, you know, what makes a city good? What, 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 why do we want to live in this particular city? What, what it ought to be doing more of? Yeah, um, I, think, uh, I think especially 
having spaces to test ideas and produce ideas. And I've had the wonderful opportunity of being able to produce work with M Pavilion last year and, and this year, hopefully. Um, and I think that's enabled me to foster a lot of connections as well as test ideas that I think in turn, the city is a space where you can safely sort of be more experimental and uh, try out new ideas. And I think sort of what the, the role the city serves is that as a testing space, it's sort of the first point before we can start to permeate these ideas to sort of outer suburbs and outer sort of regional areas as well. But I think it, the city is very important in contributing to the identity of what yeah. the state I, should be. Yeah. And, and I know I'm, now I have to go, but the question that I would love to ask, which I don't think I've, I, I have time to ask, and we talked a little about it before, was movement in cities is really critical because cities are really big and, in fact, they often need to be big to deliver very diverse sort of opportunities. But uh, when, you, when you live in one place and, and, and you work or you study in another, the transport becomes an incredibly important part. And we forget that, you know, up to 30% of a footprint of a city is actually the, you know, the motile space, the moving spaces. So um, may, we may, may have to leave that for, for another, um, uh, an, another discussion. But that it's, I suspect that's also a very important issue around city experience, which you're, you know, you, you're very directly um, experiencing. Yeah, definitely. I think I spend quite a lot of time from living quite far out from the city, a lot of time on public transport, and it's a big part of my experience in the city. Yeah. We'll hold that for another conversation, but because uh, I think I have to go now. But uh, um, I, 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 not, to me, that's also an incredibly interesting area, and, and I was wondering if that was if that up to this point had really affected your um, your, your thinking creatively. Yeah, um, definitely. I think uh, in a way, like it's it's a very it's hard to sort of it's in a very uh, little. Bit, but I think it has definitely contributed to the way I experience the city. And yeah. Okay. Um, right. uh, great to talk to you. Um, I have to go mm -hmm. now, uh, and I will hand over the uh, the sacred conch to you uh, for the, as you are the interviewer of the the next guest. But lovely to talk, and 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 uh, looking forward to seeing how you continue to develop your practice and uh, and projects. So. Thank you so Thank much, you. Michael. It was Bye. really wonderful talking to you. Bye. Um, so I guess my next, the next person I'll be talking to was, is Wendy Lassica. And Wendy, it, Wendy is an urban planner with a well-established career in the performing arts industry with an extensive resume backing her name, compromising of an acting, acting as a director for a, and board member at Nextway, an award-winning theater producer, chairing funding panels for Creative Victoria, producing across the performing arts for the last few decades and much, much more. And now she has turned her focus to supporting the development of emerging artists in cities and revitalizing the Melbourne CBD through her niche practice, working in the intersection of cities and culture. So hi, Wendy. Um, it's my absolute pleasure to have this opportunity to interview you and I guess I just want to sort of talk about and about your Turning Circle Collective. It's the one that has piqued my interest and surely many others and I think there are many interesting ideas stemming from that project which I hope 
we can spend today talking about. Um, so my first question is, what's your personal relationship to the city? Well, I grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne and um, it was uh, at a time when um, Melbourne really existed as a donut city. So, you know, most of the living happened in the suburbs and you went to the city for, you know, special events or because you worked there. Uh, but as a child, there was, you know, you'd go and visit the dentist and that was about it. Uh, maybe have an ice cream on the way home. Um, or visit your parents um, in the city where they might work. But really there was, it was not a sort of daily part of, part of your routine. And I didn't really understand that cities could be any other way until I um, visited cities overseas and eventually lived in both London and New York and saw that actually you could, um, cities could be quite differently um, put together where, you know, you can have multiple activities going on at once. It wasn't just a destination place. It was a place where you could live, um, you know, in central areas and work very close by. Uh, so um, my relationship to the city changed dramatically after experiencing that. Um, and, um, you know, it's kind of interesting because in a way Melbourne uh, went from being, you know, this very kind of bland um, um, donut city um, to something that was much more dynamic and engaged, you know, 24 hours a day with people living, working and playing, you know, in close proximity. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, you did mention that uh, you had worked in New York and London and at, you had spent some time away from there and when you had returned back, you saw some significant changes. Could you talk to a bit about that? Yeah, well, I I lived in New York um, in the 1980s and started an organisation there. Um, and I was very, um, I guess, you know, privileged to be able to go back 25 years later and celebrate a milestone with all the people that I had lived and worked with. Um, and although I'd visited New York a number of times in the intervening period, that particular visit indicated such a dramatic shift in what had occurred in the city in New York. I mean, we all understand how cities evolve over time, but somehow um, that particular visit really sort of showed markedly what those changes had been and the dramatic kind of um, sort of slide into a generic city, the loss of identity of small neighbourhoods, the increase in sort of multinational um, retail, um, and really most pertinently for what I was involved in, the real question mark that um, arts and cultural activity had at that time in New York's identity and the place that it looked like it was, you know, going to have in the future. Uh, and in a way that was kind of the impetus for me to want to know more about cities and how they operated and um, I wanted to understand how to unpack um, and kind of repack what I'd learnt um, and consequently got involved in urban planning. Yeah. Um, from your visit to New York, how has that impacted the way you see sort of the evolution of Melbourne? Uh, well, um, one of the things I think um, that we've seen with COVID is um, how stark the changes have been in Melbourne as well. 
Um, you know, and we can look around and see what's no longer there. But I think that that, that withdrawal of kind of the, the mix of activities um, has been going on for a while in Melbourne, you know, as um, so in a way what, what has occurred in Melbourne is really what I observed when I visited New York 10 years ago, um, that sort of, you know, shift towards um, a much more market-driven um, generic city that really um, sort of strips out all the sort of um, identity markers that uh, really are the things that we, you know, love about the cities that we live in. Yeah, definitely. I think that sort of leads me to sort of my main question is what, can you talk a bit about the Turning Circle Collective Project? Yes, well, I think what the that, aim is, yeah. I think that um, you've already met Michael and I think Millie spoke earlier in, the, um, in this um, presentation and Robert is also um, involved in the collective as well. And um, we have been um, looking at how to address um, this exact issue about the, um, the loss of cultural production from the CBD and the opportunity that COVID is really providing for us to rethink the sort of city that we want. And in doing so, we have um, identified a four precinct, a four block precinct in the CBD that we think um, sort of lends itself to um, encouraging a sort of um, very kind of small scale series of interventions that will deliver, um, you know, long-term cultural activity back into the CBD. And the, the blocks that we're talking about are bounded by Collins Street, Flinders Street, William Street and um, uh, uh, Queen Street. Um, and they have um, sort of four great elements within those four blocks. So one is fantastic public realm because there's a fabulous new um, uh, park at Market Street. There is a um, huge diversity of building stock in the area and potential um, availability of parts of a number of buildings. So, you know, they're different ages, they're different um, typologies. Um, and um, they, so they offer all sorts of different opportunities. There's already um, existing cultural activity in the area. So the Immigration Museum is there. Um, there are a number of um, architecture firms that are already working there. There's um, a publishing firm, Text Publishing is there. So um, there is already activity that we can um, partner with. And the third thing is that there are already um, an existing community or series of communities. So there are residents there. There are three hotels. Um, there are people who come there to work, um, both, um, you know, in high-end commercial as well as much smaller-scale businesses. Um, and there are car parks and all sorts of other things. So it really is quite a diverse um, corner of the city. And consequently, it, you know, has potential for... Um, um, a sort of, you know, long concerted um, ambition to develop a number of things over a period of time, including, um, yeah. you know, 
including uh, being able to find spaces that can be used for creative production and then pairing them with, um, with users. And then on top of that, building um, a series of public programs that um, are for the people in the precinct, but also will attract other people to come in. And, uh, and the third um, layer that uh, we're working on is um, to deliver um, some RMIT senior student um, design studios in the precinct that deal with some of the challenges the precinct is um, facing and then being able to exhibit that student work and, um, and create an opportunity for these students to then remain in this area um, as they start their, um, you know, their early career practice. Yeah, definitely. That sounds incredible. I guess a main question, I think a few people, and you've touched on this as well, but why is the city important as a space for this cultural production to happen? Well, I think that, uh, you know, there is a considerable um, groundswell for really having a diversity of activity in a city. Uh, I think that's what attracts people to, you know, to want to come to it and to remain in it. Um, and certainly building on creating rhythms that occur, rhythms of activity, I suppose, that occur, you know, across a 24-hour period. So you want to have people, you know, working in the city, but you don't want it to be dead when they leave to go home. So um, creative production along with a number of other, you know, um, sort of supporting economies and complementary economies, a really important part of um, creating a sort of full life for a city. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I have to wrap up, but I thought I'd end with my final question is, how as designers and creators can we help? Are, are we in a position to contribute and help sort of to reinvigorate Melbourne again? Well, I think that um, I think um, we can all contribute um, and consider the city, um, you know, part of our lives. I think um, one of the big things is that, um, you know, in the last 10 to 15 years, a lot of the arts community has not considered the CBD as an opportunity um, for working or living. It's just become too expensive. And this is really an op opportunity to reconsider that decision um, because I think that we will see um, some big changes occurring in the CBD over a period of time. And it really is an opportunity to um, contribute to the city that we want to be living in as opposed to the one that we had, you know, pre-COVID. Yeah, well, that's absolutely wonderful. And I look to hopefully being able to be part of that in the future as well and to meeting you in person. But I think it's time for me to pass the mic on to you. Well, thank you, Antika. It was great to talk to you. And um, I look forward to um, seeing you again in person. Yes, thank you so much. Okay. And now I'm going to introduce um, Robert as the final speaker. Um, I don't really need to introduce um, introduce him too much because I'm sure that he has, uh, or you've already seen him today once. Um, but Robert, I wanted to ask you um, about your relationship with Melbourne, because I know you spoke um, earlier about um, your sort of childhood experience um, 
in Melbourne, but I'm interested, given the impact you've had on the city, how, you know, what, what has been your relationship with the city as an adult, I suppose? My experience with the city obviously was initially my first, my careers began in the city, you know, working in bars um, and then setting up the Fashion Design Council, mm. being in studio spaces in the city. And so there was a lot of interaction. And, of course, the thing that I always appreciated about Melbourne and what in, inspired me about Melbourne was the relationship between um, different parts of society and different cultural groups. So, art, you know, visual artists spoke to filmmakers, spoke to musicians, spoke to um, politicians. You know, I mean, everyone, you know, people spoke to one another. And that interaction, that inter exchange of ideas is what I think is so important about a city. And I think what defined Melbourne, well, certainly defined Melbourne for me in the past. And, and that's what it has to be in the future because, um, as we've said, you know, the city, and, and that's what became so apparent too when the city was empty. You go into Melbourne and, yes, there's lots of Melbourne that I love and lots of Melbourne I appreciate, but a lot of it is really ugly. And without the people, you don't get, you just, you just don't have a place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, one, one of the things that you talked about was the sort of... Um, uh, was the fact that, you know, the city that you liked was not always comfortable, was not always a nice place to be. Mm. Um, and one of the things that I, I responded to when I went to see Uptown was the fact that I really thought this was a Melbourne experience. You know, I felt that this, you know, the same choice of artists put somewhere else like Sydney would have been a completely different experience. And I'm curious about what what elements that you and Fiona were influenced by to, um, um, I guess, you know, to make the choices that you did about the way you installed the art. Yeah. Um, yeah I think Fiona and I joke that, you know, we had two months to do it and probably it was, you know, 40 years in the making um, <laughs> because it is... It is very much about our history. It is very much about the place. Um, and there is a sense of nostalgia, I suppose, because we did select a part of the city which is perhaps slightly less um, uh, touched or less damaged by the last 30 years. Yeah. It's damaged in different ways. But, you know, it's still low scale. It doesn't have the high rise. It has a lot of the old elements that made Melbourne special, the hospitality, the laneways, the laneway culture, you know, individual um, um, retailers, the personalities um, that make a, a city great. And, and the light, you know, very different elements of it, you know, which are all very Melbourne. And so... We had to do something very quickly. We wanted to work with visual artists. We consulted broadly. We spoke to lots of different galleries to get a sense of, well, what is the mix of artists? What artists are doing what? And we wanted there to be them to be all local artists, but we wanted them to say something about what was what it was to be in a city. And, you know, that had to be done quickly. Um, and we had to use, and, and also I suppose because Fiona and I both um, like architecture and design, and respond to the the, the physical space. Yeah. We didn't think we also weren't working with a white cube, so we were working with 
the outdoors. Yep. Now, a lot, some of it is very successful. Some of it's not so successful. Mm-hmm. A little bit, lots of it is it's not all obvious. Some of it is big. Some of it is extremely small. And, uh, uh, and a lot of it requires a bit of work. You know, we didn't have the resources to make it a completely um, seamless experience. And sometimes it, it's more beautiful at night. Sometimes it's more beautiful during the day. Yeah. But that's, but I think in the, in the process, what we really enjoyed or what we thought about was this was an opportunity to engage with artists, to get artists to engage with their city, but also for people to look at the visual arts but also look at their city anew mm-hmm. and sort of really by having to, to look out well, where the art was, where it was placed, actually look at what what the city looks like and what the city we have created and we've all done it we've all allowed the city many good aspects but a lot of very sad aspects you know yeah. the market has has created the city and we have created that city and so as, as I think Barry talked about you know COVID's like an x-ray it's a time to reassess and it's a time to really look at it and unless we as people who care about our city and people with the ability um, and, and the problem-solving skills, which all artists and designers have, if unless we step up and do something about it, basically the city will be once again lost to property developers and market forces, and that's not the city I want to live in. We, we will have to, we have to wrap it up. You've laid out the challenge and we will now rise. I think the challenge, it's for, and, 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 you know, Wendy, you're doing the same thing. And I think a lot of people, so many people care about Melbourne. So yeah. many people can, can play a role. And that's the, import, I think that is the important message. And, you know, for, and also for governments to think about how, how it's investing in people. Yeah. You know, it's not, you know, people talk about, governments talk about how, how much money they're going to spend on infrastructure, how much money they're going to spend on new museums, but they don't ever send, send, they don't ever talk about how much money they're going to spend on people because people ultimately are the ones that make the difference. It's the people who are, have the energy to, to, to have the businesses to create the art. And as we've talked about, the importance of having cultural production in the CBD because yeah. that's where you get you know, artists and designers working and living in the city, they have an impact. They impact the social, um, the economic um, and the cultural life of the city. And if we want to be a creative city, if we claim to be a creative city, we have to take that seriously. Thank you, Robert. (laughs) Thank you, Wendy. Thanks. And uh, thank you for being part of today's discussion. And thank you to the artists, designers, curators and strategists that contributed their thoughts and insights. Millie Catlin, Suzanne Conn, Rory Hyde, Fiona Scanlon, Kent Morris, Fleur Watson, Barry Barton, Eugenia Lim, Michael Trudgeon, Atika Salma, Wendy Lassiker and the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, Sally Cap. So let's review what some of the takeouts from today are. Firstly, Uh, Cities are important because they're places of connection, diversity and inspiration. They're the magic collision um, of of all these things, and that's what what cities are about. 
Secondly, to be successful, Melbourne needs to continue to be a multi-dimensional, highly complex, multi-textured place. As Millie and Atika say, um, they need to be places that celebrate ideas and experimentation. Thirdly, while cities are about evolution, transformation and change, it seems clear that the history um, and dis distinct local characteristics need to be preserved. Kent also reminded us of the contribution of First Peoples and how to learn from them. Michael and Fiona talked about Melbourne as a combination of architecture, people, enterprise, shared experience and planning, and the importance of getting this very delicate mix, this very delicate um, um, balance right. Rory explained that artists offer more than just window dressing for cities, but are indeed an undervalued resource, offering other forms of intelligence. This ties in with Eugenia's comments about the sort of do-it-yourself ingenuity of artists, their problem-solving problem expertise, and how these are things that artists can bring to the table in helping our city. And Wendy warned us about how boring cities become if art and culture are pushed out by generic consumerism. Barry spoke about the pandemic as an X-ray, a pause point to reassess our city, check its health, expect more from developers and planners, and how we all need to become better at advocating for what we want. Finally, Fleur talked about the need to empower citizens to join the civic conversation. And Suzanne reminded us that anything can be achieved if we all join forces. Thank you again for all the speakers. Thank you to M Pavilion and the City of Melbourne for making this event possible and the Lord Mayor Sally Cap for sharing the vision. Um, also, thank you to Turning Circle Collective for their contribution and championing artists and designers as such a vital part of Melbourne's future. Today's discussion focused on visual artists and architecture, but future talks will explore the role of music, dance and literature and how individual artists, organisations and institutions, large, medium and micro, are all part of the cultural ecosystem and how this cultural ecosystem um, is needed um, to be reintegrated into Melbourne centre to create a great future together. All the best and goodbye. listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.